Lovers, this is Killstreak, episode 60. The Dixty 60, as they say. I am one of your hosts, Eric Goslin, and joining me, as always, Mr. Mike Price. How you doing, Mike? I'm all right. Who says Dixty? Mm, uh, I'm sorry. You're breaking up there. Moving on. Uh, (laughs) We're coming at you a little bit loose tonight. Uh, Full disclosure, I just watched WrestleMania before this. <clears throat> with a, a friend uh hey we're all vaxxed now we're getting together it's coming yeah. out into the world it feels nice and i had a few beverages so hey if i sound a little off you know why and it's not just because i'm a bad podcaster yeah and uh i thought to kind of even the scales and to just really make this an experimental episode i got kind of stoned um, so, <laughs> so you guys can really reflect on the impact that these two facts have, uh, yeah. on a and record. Honestly, uh, it's appropriate for a real trippy movie, man. <laughs> <laughs> I thought are. it would, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, I thought it would be a particularly good idea in light of the fact that last week I decided that I talked too slow on the podcast. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so Slow it down get, even further. Just, yeah. I'm just gonna, you know. Give my thoughts some time to marinate while I'm actively speaking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, today we're here to talk about Phantasm, start of a brand new series with us. Uh, it's exciting. You said this last time, but this is a real uh, down the middle, over the plate home run for us. I feel like it's a you fastball. Did, it's a fastball pitch. <laughs> Mike, for for those of you who can't see Mike, I'm the only one who can. He did just suddenly start looking around and gripped his hand <laughs> i was getting ready to deliver a cool a fun line that was oh my... sorry <laughs> no it's fine i was just i was entering a muscle a muscle tension pose uh which is what i always do before i unleash something funny um but i forgot what it was gonna be now <laughs> <laughs> wow this is great so far i love it i love it now i was gonna say uh, a fastball pitch which is a reference to something that we'll talk about later mm-hmm um so i guess blood and guts check let's let's jump right into it unless you uh, have anything else you want to cover at the top of the show before we no nah, it's fine this feels like this is gonna be a streamlined episode i like it we're just gonna move fast like a plymouth cuda oh um, yeah hell yeah 71 cuda mm-hmm. blood and guts check mike when did you this is de- certainly not the first time you've seen phantasm <clears throat> no do you remember the first time you saw it and uh, what were it your would... opinions yeah, this is um, okay. So I don't remember exactly, but let's say the first time I saw this was in my mid twenties. So it was okay. not a teen movie for me, um, which is kind of a shame. I mean, I <laughs> spoiler, I love it. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I but I was gonna say it's kind of a shame because I probably would have absolutely loved this movie if I was fifteen when I saw it for the first time. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe that's the case for you, and you can expound on that. But not yet. I'll finish my blood and guts check. Sorry. Anyways, <laughs> there's going to be a couple tangents from my original point. 
And I'm going to need you, Eric, to help me get back to where I Sure, started. sure. Okay. So the first time I saw it, I was probably in my mid-20s. And I think I probably watched it in a state not unlike the one I'm in right now. <laughs> um, where I was like kind of half paying attention. I was like, that was cool. That was fun. But I didn't really like take it in in a way, yeah. you know, to give it full credit. And then I think it was probably like five years ago that I watched it for a second time and paid a lot of attention. And I was like, oh, this movie rules. I really like this a lot. And then since then, I've probably seen it like three or four more times. Yeah, I'm in a similar boat. Um, I saw it for the first time, though, when I was a teenager. And I remember like liking it, but also being confused. Yes. As one is want to do when you first see this movie. And it really did take like two or three viewings before I, I truly started to appreciate it. Like mm. there's always something I came back to though. You know what I mean? I never disliked it. Yeah. And there was something about it though that I was like, I like that movie. And then I would watch it more. And the more I watched it, I would appreciate it more and more. Uh, and especially this last time, I really, it, it just gets better every time they watch it. I think, I feel like. Yeah. I think it's just a movie that like, if you're somebody who likes if, you, if you're someone who would listen to this podcast because you're like a self-proclaimed fan of horror, it's hard to imagine watching this and not enjoying it. Mm -hmm. um, like the level to which you like like or love it could vary. I'm sure people's mileage is going to vary, but it's like, I don't know who comes away from this. And they're like, the movie sucked. Yeah. It's just a ton of fun. It's it's yeah. It looks great, even though it was shoe, a shoestring budget. Um, and it like, yeah, it, there's just so much in here that is appealing to our yeah. specific tastes. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's uh, it's fun. It's experimental. It's weird, mm -hmm. but also still manages to be somehow kind of mainstream in its weirdness, mm -hmm. which I think helps it. <laughs> um, and it's got great music. Yeah, it's like. Um, there's a lot of things to like here. And I think that the kind of shaggy dog nature of how this movie came together, like does come through in it too. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's like a likable underdog movie. It feels like that. And, and, you know, not coincidentally, that's kind of like how it got made. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get into that. This is sure. uh written and directed, edited, uh, per produced and shot by <laughs> Don Coscarelli. Yeah. Um, who, uh, you know, he's he's made all of the Phantasm movies except for the last one. Yeah, he made Beastmaster. Um, uh, what's the other big one that I'm figuring? Oh, Bubba Hotep, of course. Bubba Hotep and more recently uh, John Dies at the End. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, um, so at the time, he mm -hmm. was only 23 when he made this movie. And it was his third feature. It was his third film. feature. <laughs> He yeah. had previously made um, one called Jim, the World's Greatest, which was originally called like Story of a Teenager. Mm -hmm. uh, he co-directed that with another another guy, Craig Mitchell. Um, and they became they shot it like they dropped out of college, I believe. And yeah, he was, shot this yeah movie. he was going to film school at UCLA and he dropped out after his first year to, to do this. Yeah. And he was like 18 years old. They shoot a, a feature-length movie um, starring a lot of the people who are ended, who ended up in Phantasm, including Angus Scrim mm -hmm. and Reggie Bannister had, had a small part in it. Um, and they ended up becoming the youngest directors to ever get 
uh, major distribution because it got picked up by Universal after yeah. it was shot. Um, so this was a uh, a film company he ended up making with his like father. His father was into finance, um, it owned like an investment company, and so they're kind of a little bit on the well-to-do side, <clears throat> but from all reports, very down to earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father wanted to invest in other films, but then he was basically like they took a meeting with some yeah. other Hollywood people who like the the meeting ended up not going well. And they just felt like the guys were a little bit dirtbags. And his father's like, you know what? If I'm going to put $20,000 into a movie, I want it to be your movie and not some random guys. Um, and the, uh, the, the gamble ended up paying off in a way. In a big way, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I believe that uh, ultimately they were written a check for $250,000. Yeah, for, that's right. Mm-hmm. For the sale of the movie. I guess I qualified it because the movie ended up like not really performing very well at all. Sure. Uh, it was like a coming of age, um, very like self-serious, although from all accounts, well-made. It's hard to find. Mm-hmm. I tried to track it down. It's it's not really available anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, y- yeah. It seems like it'll be hard for us to ever really uh, say if it's a, if it was good or bad, but it, you know, it was good enough to get studio distribution, but when... Coscarelli talks about it. He does a lot of reflecting on, like you mentioned, the self-serious nature of it and kind of like coming to the realization over a number of years, although he's still very young, that like uh, doing something simpler, uh, Mm. something a little and and really he, he talks about even following advice from some mentors that he had, which is like, do stuff like horror and sci-fi. Cause it's like, it's yeah. easier to make and people like it. And it's, you know, it tends to make money and that's, you know, how we all end up here with all these great yeah. movies. It, he ended up like oh, getting offered a directing job at universal for their TV stuff mm. at the age of like 19 at the time, 1920. And he turned it down, which is like, pretty ballsy move i don't think i could have had the guts (laughs) to do no um and then he made another movie that was another like coming of age movie called kenny and company um which starred michael baldwin from phantasm Mm -hmm. that's how they made that connection uh again all accounts a good movie a really underperformed at the box office it was strangely a huge hit in japan (laughs) like (laughs) there were superstars in japan yeah, yeah. When and whenever that happens, I don't understand why the people's immediate response isn't like, "Okay, let's move to Japan." Yeah, and be <laughs> famous in Japan. That sounds better. Uh, although now that I'm, you know, at a slightly uh, more mature age, I'm no longer totally enamored with the idea of being famous. It finally seems like something that would maybe suck a lot. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that's why I actively stopped pursuing being famous. No, it's good. It has nothing to do with the self-filtering nature of Hollywood. <laughs> uh, well, what is this podcast if not our attempt to finally break into the big leagues? Please, so. guys, make us famous. Please. <laughs> I want to be famous so bad. Um, so uh, you alluded to it. Now he wanted to make mm-hmm. something that was a little bit more marketable. He's yeah. 22. Super young. Um, and there was a scene in Kenny and Company that took place in a haunted house that by Coscarelli's telling. Oh, by the way, we're taking a lot of this info from Coscarelli's own book called True mm-hmm. Indie. And also um, I have uh, 
Phantasm Exhumed by Dustin McNeil, I believe his name is. Anyways, that's where we're getting a lot of this info from. Uh, there's a scene in Kenny and Company that takes place in a haunted house. It made the audience jump, even though it's not a scary movie. Mm-hmm. And Coscarelli was like, wait a minute. That <laughs> felt really cool to make the whole audience jump. These fucking suckers, all they want is some sort of visceral response. Yeah. 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 Um, so he initially wanted to adapt Ray, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, and that was actually like right. He had just had bad timing. It was already being an option. Who knows if he would ever be able to. Yeah. And also he got optioned by Disney and it's like, yeah, he, he talks about it. It's like, we just missed out on it. We were a week late and it's like, pretty sure Disney was also going to pay Ray Bradbury more than you were. For yeah. The option. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we ended up going to a cabin in big bear and using some of the themes of, of that book. He wrote, what ended up being called Morningside and then eventually Phantasm. Uh, the budget was pretty small. It was $300,000 financed partially by his father again. And uh, his dad, along with his mom, were executive producers on it. They were yep. very hands-on. This was a yeah. real family affair. Yeah, his mother in particular is part of like the technical crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think she is in the credits under three different pseudonyms mm-hmm. uh, for makeup, uh, costuming, and at least some other uh, design-related role. Yeah, and I think um, she even like made food for everybody, too. Yeah, yeah. Because they end up they with that budget they couldn't really pay anybody so they deferred payment with a lot of the crew members um, yes. so they were able to get some professionals but mostly it was like students mm-hmm. and just friends of theirs yeah now something that was, I thought was interesting about this whole the the making of story is that it it is surprisingly professional in a lot of ways for like how and i think maybe that's because that you're you know you're talking about somebody who's actually made a studio feature before Mm -hmm. um so it it doesn't have that same origin story of like uh an evil dad as an example where it's just like oh everybody was fucking miserable the whole time or texas chainsaw massacre where it's just like yeah it was awful and it was such a mess it's more like it's the, the stories are cool in that they're like inventive and creative and it's a lot of um creative solutions to problems but it also yeah. sounds like they they did make a real movie they ran a real production and i think you can tell yeah but it still it seemed like a um a college vibe to it all because they only shot on weekends they shot mm-hmm. at a really really slow pace yeah like um, almost a year i think right yeah yeah, yeah. In, in according to like the book i read um if they just didn't like something the way it looked like lighting wise, they just would reshoot it and they just reshot yeah. their editing while they were shooting. So like they kind of knew what they needed. They budgeted some reshoot, to, reshoot money, which Coscarelli said is like kind of the first thing he always does is like mm. budget for reshoots because you're going to need some. They ended up getting a house in Van Nuys by the airport to shoot like the, um, the brother's house was, was right. the interiors, but they also lived out of that house. Yeah, and it was the production office for the whole film. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, <laughs> I thought it was funny. Also, the Dos Equis has a prominent, is featured pretty heavily in the yeah. movie. And that was because along with the dirt bike that Mike drives, Dos Equis 
gave them cases of beer to feature in the movie. So <laughs> it's just all over the movie. And also they were drinking it the entire time too. Yeah. It's got, a, it's got some fun loose vibes for sure. Um, and then I, there's just, you know, I don't want to belabor it too much, but there's a lot of cool, uh, I mentioned creative solutions to stuff mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's, I wouldn't call this movie necessarily a special effects extravaganza, but it has a handful of really memorable sequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, I think, you know, first and foremost, people who are familiar with Phantasm, you, you basically think of two things. You think of the, the lead of this film, who we'll discuss in depth, the tall man. Mm-hmm. And then you think of these uh, murderous silver orbs, right? It's sort yeah. of like, it's like the Freddy Krueger's glove or Jason's hockey mask of this particular series i think we may have even ranked them number one in like our favorite murder weapons if i remember correctly i I think you're correct yeah they were definitely on the list so um yeah the silver ball came to coscarelli in a dream of just like he was being (laughs) pursued by this this flying ball and initially they wanted to have a hypodermic needle attached to it but then um (laughs) they saw a trailer for star wars and there was something very similar in oh, Star yeah, Wars. Oh yeah, it's like the um, interrogation device exactly, or whatever. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like, oh fuck, we gotta we gotta change it. Like that <laughs> Star Wars did it. Um, so they end up getting. Uh, let me see here. I have I have it uh, written down. Willard Green, old yeah. school. Yeah. Hollywood. So it, a guy who's who was an old school Hollywood effects artist, but didn't really do a ton of horror stuff. Um, but they essentially described the whole idea to him and, and got him to, uh, craft them something completely custom just based on this, you know, dream origin. I, yeah, that, uh, I, idea, crazy idea that Coscarelli had, uh, and he did an amazing job with it. Yeah. They, he ended up like his work workaround for a lot of the problems was they just had different balls that did different things that, that Mm -hmm. you know, like one that had the retracting blades one that had the drill and just they shot it all to make it seem like it's all one thing mm-hmm. uh, they use a lot of um shooting in reverse to make it fly yeah which they he describes in detail uh the particular kind of old school technique that they use for reverse shooting in his book mm-hmm. which i did not know that this was how in the pre digital uh editing era you shot reverse footage on a camera yeah you even uh put, i think you even put the camera upside down yeah so it's yeah you put the camera upside down so then then you can t- literally take the exposed film and flip it mm-hmm. upside down and then it runs backwards but the image is righted once again and i was like oh that's crazy and like very smart and i was like oh duh yeah it's awesome yeah, yeah. uh also one thing that blew me away was the uh mausoleum that they made sure. was just one hallway and just, they would just rearrange the statuary in it. And mm-hmm. like some of the hall, like it was on a set in a warehouse in Chatsworth and they would just move some stuff around and just shoot it from different angles. And were able to make this like maze like mausoleum. And it looks great too on yeah. camera, but it's all like contact paper and wood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say, too, is that, like, the interiors of that mausoleum, and this is sort of a pivot to a slightly different topic, but 
the interior of that mausoleum, there's something about the way they shot and lit it that just like it looks phenomenal for something that is kind of slapped together in that respect. And uh, I think that if you watch this movie, at least streaming, chances are you probably watched the remastered version. Yes. Um, which is something that I wanted to touch on really quickly. Uh, was basically just a project um, spearheaded almost by J.J. Abrams, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bad um, Robot did it, yeah. Yeah, who was a huge fan of this movie growing up uh, and basically ended up in a conversation with Coscarelli about um, whether or not there was, you know, uh, ever going to be this kind of, you know, digital remaster, like something for the, you know, the, the HD era, essentially. And turns out that the the footage was all there and, and in good shape, but it was just a matter of cost and sort of uh, will. And so he essentially said, yeah, Bad Robot can do it. And like, I think bankrolled some of it and spearheaded the whole thing. And yeah. And so the version that exists now, it looks fucking great. It I looks think. great. And it sounds great, yeah. too. Like it's mm-hmm. uh, I do. Event- I, I want to shout out the 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 score really slaps <laughs> I, uh, shit, I didn't write down who did it though um but i'll, I'll get to that in a second I'll, and, I, and i will give them their proper kill streak salute but um i have my don coscarelli book right here i was just open to that page a second ago it's uh fred myro and malcolm it. seagrave yep yeah. um the exterior of the morningside you know funeral home that was actually I read this today. That was shot up in Oakland, <clears throat> and is also featured in Burnt Offerings, and and also Roger Moore's final Bond film, A View to a Kill, and Mike Myers' comedy So I Married an Axe Murderer. It's all all shared that same wow. like exterior. Yeah, okay, I'm trying to so, place it in in the movie, but I can't. So, but. so I Married an Axe Murderer. I'm going to guess it's like the hotel that they go to. At the oh, end. sure, yeah. Um, View to a Kill. I'm pretty sure I know what it is. It's the what the the woman from Beastmaster. She oh, Tanya lives, Roberts. Yeah, Tanya Roberts lives there. It's like mm-hmm. her random unfurnished mansion <laughs> that, that he shoots a bunch of guys with rock salt and a shotgun there. Anyways, mm. Yeah, the other ones I don't know. Uh, so okay, well, they shoot the movie. Goes pretty slowly. Everybody seems to have a pretty good time. Um. Certainly, Angus Scrim did. Oh, I wanted to point out, <laughs> Angus Scrim when he was when they were told him about the movie, he's like, "Yeah, you're playing an alien," and he thought they meant in a in a legal alien. And he's like, "Oh, this is great. It's gonna be like a real down to earth immigrant story. <laughs> Something I can really sink my teeth into." <laughs> like, no, 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 like an alien from outer space that's a grave <laughs> robber. He's like, "Okay, well that that works too." <laughs> Money's still green. Um. Angus Scrim really, you know, along with Reggie Bannister, who plays Reggie, um, yeah. Angus of all the people seemed like he was just having such a good time doing this. Like he was an older guy, uh, older than the rest, certainly. And yeah, an actor, um, a working actor. But I think primarily he wrote liner notes for records, which is interesting. <laughs> it's a weird thing that that's your whole job. It's like yeah, I feel like you could have pretty much anybody do that <laughs> yeah so yeah he was writing liner notes for money um and then uh this was actually i mean he was in um 
you know, Jim, the world's greatest, but this was kind of his big break. And yeah, he just cemented his name into horror movie history with the tall man. He plays a, a wonderfully imposing figure. He's got a great voice for it. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, there's just like a real, uh, there's a real specific physicality to the way he moves around as the tall man, um, which I mean, credit to him as an actor, because that idea of, like, I think he really took the direction that you're an alien kind of to heart. Like, he, yeah. there is a there is a weird a sort of deliberate inhumanness about the way he moves around in this movie and subsequent mm-hmm. movies. And I think it's really effective. Uh, so they're, they're editing while they were shooting because they just shot on the weekends. <clears throat> they ended up screening it for a test audience just on their own. They wasn't even like backed by a studio. They just wanted to see. And uh, their suspicions that the movie was too long were kind of va- uh, validated there. It was more streamlined. There was some, there's a whole subplot about how Jody inherited his family's bank. <laughs> and like, he's like dating one of the tellers who's Susie, who is, ends up in the antique store. Yeah, I was going to say, so the antique store girls show up really completely out of fucking nowhere. Yeah. And then just as soon are gone. And it made a lot of sense to then read that like, oh, yeah, there was a whole abandoned subplot that they were in. I was like, okay, because it seems really fucking weird the way that they currently exist in the film. Yeah. So uh coscarelli wanted to decide he decided instead of it it being like an ensemble piece he wanted to focus it more on mike as a character kind of dialed back everybody's screen time and also wanted to make it less linear Mm. and more dreamlike which is what we ended up with uh and i think that's what makes people keep return keep returning to this movie yeah because it's not exactly like it's not a puzzle box of a movie, but it's there's something that just it's like intoxicating and dreamlike in a way that really like at least pulls me back to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it is what's unique about it. It's what sets it apart from mm-hmm. a lot of the other movies of this era. Um, is it's it, and it's funny because I was thinking. <laughs> I had a more profound thought this morning while I was in the shower about this. And then instead of writing it down, I was just like, I'll remember it. (laughs) Then I got Um, stoned before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But I was basically thinking about the, like drawing comparisons between this movie and and what Coscarelli kind of goes for here versus uh, like David Lynch, who's a director Mm -hmm. who's pretty well known or famous for that idea of creating sort of dreamlike narratives. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it's just like this is the completely unself serious version of that. And it's and to be clear, I love David Lynch. Yeah, me too. He's he's made a lot of uh, things that I consider to be all time great pieces of work. However, like he's a true weirdo and. Mm like very um affected very artistic like in a, in ways that I think are wonderful and rewarding and I think Don Coscarelli it's like the yin to his yang yes he's more right? like the workman yeah but he's but he, at the same time this so that's what this movie almost feels like it's like what if somebody tried to do a David Lynch thing but they were just like a dude who likes to play guitar and drink beer right you know? right right yeah oh and I'm glad you brought up twin peaks because I think the nature of this series 
in just how it uses a lot of the same actors from movie to movie mm-hmm. to movie over the course of decades. Yeah. Really, especially in once we get into like Oblivion, oh, this will come up again. Mm-hmm. But certainly like Oblivion and Ravager, it starts to feel almost like Twin Peaks The Return. Where yeah. like the passage of time becomes part of the narrative. Would you call it a character in the movie? It's kind of a <laughs> time is sort of a character in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, it's really true. I, so I think both of us did at the same time, maybe, or certainly like in the in the recent years have done a full watch through of this series before. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It was a couple yeah. years ago. A couple years ago for me, too. I think it corresponded with it appearing on uh, The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's where I watched them all again. But... Yeah, when you go through this whole series, like, if you're going to go through this series with us, I'll give you, like, this is my advice right now. Like, really take in, there's a youthfulness to this movie that, like, is going to go away. And it's going to go away pretty fast Mm -hmm. because there's a big jump. There's a nine-year jump to Phantasm Mm -hmm. 2. And... It was hard for me to watch this full series and not think a lot about death and aging, yeah. Which is which is crazy because that is also very deliberately that's like the theme, yeah. One of the, the theme. themes, yeah. But it's it's like real life and art almost collided in a in a way, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And it's uh, I mean, it's not the most profound thing ever the way the series deals with it, but it is just really interesting to go through these five movies and you get to watch this aging process unfold, which is part of what like the terror of, of this whole movie is about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. I'll let's, I'll wrap this section up, uh, just by saying, I thought it was interesting that it tested the second time they tested it in front of an audience was on a double bill with Cheech and Chong's up in smoke. it had played a lot better in this new form and then when it came time to uh, find distribution they had a little bit of trouble um Mm. there wasn't there weren't a lot of studios that wanted to take the risk on it although it did perform well with audiences uh they were kind of just like booking it themselves people were lined up around the block that kind of situation and then finally avco gave them maybe the best offer they had, which yeah. wasn't even a great offer. And that's who they ended up going with. And then, you know, it made all of its money back and then some yeah. on home video. Yeah. Where a lot of and, these movies that we cover really make their money. Yeah. And it's probably worth noting that Avco, presumably one of the reasons why they were in a position where they even wanted to take a chance on a movie like this is because they had just done really well with Halloween. Yeah. Uh, just a year or two prior. And so they were like, hey, we made a bunch of money on that. Maybe we should keep dipping our toe into this pool. Another name that was in the mix but wasn't established yet was New Line. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street hadn't really come out yet. Hadn't come out yet. So they didn't really have deep pockets that they wanted for this one because, you know, they put a lot of their own money into this and spent a big chunk of their life and they wanted to get, they wanted to get a little bit of a payday back. Um, and... I'm not sure, you know, if that obviously they were able to make more from this. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to track the budgetary levels of each of these. And that's something we'll certainly cover in future episodes going in, down the line. Um, but, yeah, that's pretty much all I had for the history and making of this. I have a bunch of other shit that I'll interject as we're going down cool. the uh, the the. Syn- <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. I like this. Well, I like this new format. I'll take over the. Uh, you, you're just gonna do all the hard work, and yeah, then, sure. <laughs> and then I'll just do color. But I can also do these a little bit more, where I move us from one part of the show to another. So, that's the end of Eric's trailing off. Uh, and so we're gonna take a quick break, <laughs> and then we'll be right back with the recap of the movie. Okay, we're back from our break. Um, should we tell the listeners what happened? <laughs> well, I guess so. <laughs> I guess we- I. Uh, it would be weird if we didn't. Just like no, nope, no, nope, they don't need to know. Anyways, to know. on with the recap. Yeah. Uh, so we uh pressed record to yeah. do this second segment, mm-hmm. and then we both sat there silently waiting for the <laughs> other person to start doing the recap. <laughs> and then I was like, well, uh, why don't you take it away? <laughs> He's like, well, you usually do it. Right. And then, and then I we're... <laughs> and I sat in silence for a second. And then I went, Eric did talk a lot during the behind the scenes part. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird. And I was like, is there, is this why? Yeah. Yeah. We got our, we didn't com- uh, communicate exactly how we were going to do this episode. I was under the assumption that we were doing it like we did the last episode. Mike was, thought like new series back to the way it was. And so we took a day. We took the night off. <laughs> and Mike 24 hours later. Watched the movie, did the notes. <laughs> but then I will be doing the notes now from uh, part two on. So Well, I thought I said I was going to do them for the rest of the Oh, well, I said no, I don't mind doing it. <laughs> All right. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, well, I'm glad we talked about it this time. Me too. It'd be really <laughs> shitty next time people <laughs> took notes. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh my god, it would be very like us, though. <laughs> it would. It would truly. And I'm now no longer stoned, um, so I'll be mm-hmm. sharper. But I'm also going to be uh, in a bad mood because we're all talking on our text thread right now about the news just came down that the ArcLight and Pacific Theaters are not reopening. Yeah, it's super. It's such a bummer. The ArcLight is my, without exaggeration, my favorite movie theater ever. Perhaps mm-hmm. uh, I really can't think of any any I love more. I like the Aust- the Alamo Draft House, but you know yeah. I've only been there in L.A. once, and I go to the right. ArcLight all the time, or I did before the yeah. pandemic. For those who don't know, it's it's an L.A. based movie theater chain. It's it's local to the state, and it's kind of like the. Um, how would I describe it? It's like the serious moviegoers movie theater. So it, it was yeah. one of the f- the first theaters to do reserved seating way back in the day. Yeah. Um, they're very strict about starting their movies on time. Um, you know, they enfor- like similar to Alamo Draft House, they enforce like the no phones, no talking rules. Um, but their programming is great. The they pay a lot of attention to the fidelity of the sound and and visual presentation and yeah. you know the, the people who work there are all movie lovers and super well informed and i should say who worked there because as of right now it is it is done it is gone yeah. it's such a bummer then there's there's a few all over the city you know i would go between the hollywood one and the pasadena one yeah um yeah it's just a bummer man uh, and that was one of the things now that i'm vaccinated that I was excited to get back to do was Absolutely. to go to a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then uh, right next door was Amoeba Records in that move. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that whole area, it's right in the middle of Hollywood. For those of you not familiar, 
And Amoeba was just this giant, giant record store that had been there for decades. It's the size of like a warehouse. They have them in, also in like Oakland and San Francisco. I think those are still around. I, I'm not really sure. I think so, yeah. But yeah, and so that's gone. It's moved. And then, uh, yeah, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be no more afternoons where I get, when I go there, when I'm not working, go there during the middle of the day park yeah. walk over to amoeba buy a couple records and go watch a movie and that's just yeah real bummer yeah i mean you know yeah you were talking about favorite movie theaters and there's like there's places that i like more for specific things and sure and, yeah. and there's some cool spots in the city but like if it's like a proof is in the pudding thing i saw easily more movies at ArcLight than oh, anywhere for else sure yeah I used, I used to go to the new beverly all the time which is now mm-hmm. quentin tarantino's movie theater yeah they just did double features constantly and they still i don't know if they, they probably are closed right now i'm not really sure, sure. um yeah but uh you know that's more of like you know you have to get there at six and it's like that never worked out with my time schedule right but that was a blast to do when i was like not married didn't have a kid <laughs> and i could just leave work and go yeah. to a double feature I am neither of those things, and I find it daunting to imagine going to a double feature. So yeah, yeah. But anyways, anyway, uh, this movie probably played at the new Bev. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. sure of it. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I mean, here's to hoping that somebody can come in and do something to save that theater. Sadly, it doesn't seem like the ArcLight organization is probably ever coming back. But at least those theaters. Let's hope somebody keeps them in business and showing movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, everyone, pray for the for the, for the cinema industry. <laughs> it's real bad. It's in real bad yeah. shape. Even as much as I like the convenience of watching stuff at home, I know mm-hmm. intellectually that that's not good for the business. Yeah. I mean, I'm also somebody who like I still haven't made. I of course love watching movies at home, but I will always always prefer to go to a theater. Me too. Um, and, and it just you know my yeah. lifestyle got in the way of that for years. But now, obviously, the pandemic, nobody's gone to the fucking movies, mm-hmm. but. Before, like, I am now at the, my son is at the age where now I can go back to doing things like I kind of normally was. And it's sure. not a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It's. I think this next year is going to be really dicey. Uh, yeah. And we're going to learn a lot. Uh, and hopefully there's some good news to go along with all the bad news we've gotten so far. But anyways, let's talk about Phantasm. Let's talk Phantasm. Um, so the movie opens with. Well, first of all, technically, it opens with a couple different production title cards, and the Avco Embassy Pictures one is fucking great. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, I love it so much. I'm not going to try to describe it, but just hey, go look it up on YouTube, or better yet, watch Phantasm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one more warning. If you haven't seen Phantasm before, really, really, really implore you to watch it before you listen to this recap i mean if you've seen it before great listen to the recap of course but if you are a complete virgin you've never seen it this is my last warning i really hope you watch this movie first instead of just listening to us describe it yeah yeah um but anyways the film proper opens on the exterior of a a a mausoleum we'll find out i guess this is a thing that i was going over all like the whole time i was doing my notes is like the mausoleum is like the part inside with all the crypts or whatever but yeah. Like, what's the whole building called? I guess it's a funeral home. I'm not exactly. Okay. I was trying yeah. to think of the proper wording too yesterday when we were talking about it. Yeah. Funeral home sounds good to me. It's that building we were talking about in the intro. Yeah, that's it. This, it's actually located in Oakland and was in a couple of movies. Yeah, yeah. Big white building, big pillars. 
Uh, it's nighttime, and we see the exterior. Uh, and then in the nearby cemetery, we got two people boning. Hell yeah. Uh, we just see their legs sticking out from behind some graves at first. Uh, and I'm going to say that there's a, a a trend throughout this whole scene of the legs don't really represent positioning that makes sense with where people's heads are. <laughs> no. So I'll interrupt and say uh, that uh, this is uh, Kathy Lester is the lady in Lavender, as she gets yeah. she, she's named. And I think Bill Cohn is the other guy, Tommy. Tommy, yeah. And um, she was... They were both pretty uncomfortable with doing a sex scene, and is you know she I think she was probably her first her first go at acting, mm-hmm. and um, initially it was supposed to be a close set. There may have been some nudity that was required of her that she was going to do, but then uh, she overheard apparently she overheard somebody say like, "Hey, get the bimbo" or something like that Ooh. from the trailer, and was like, "Fuck that, I'm not doing that." And then yeah. so they had to improvise, get a body double, and and they really struggled to get any sort of sex like uh movements out of her <laughs> and him too he was also sure. really uncomfortable yeah you know, not yeah. to pin the blame on her uh no well, and... well, well within her rights to do so mm-hmm. yeah so a fun <laughs> some really fun trivia to start off the, yeah. the movie <laughs> you guys phantasm is the best we love phantasm we love everybody involved in it also oh here's well, then, this light- terrible to, story to lighten it up a body double. They brought in a body double to show the boobs, uh-huh. which I think is coming up in the next in this scene. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, during a screening, her mother was in yeah. the audience and was like, "Kathy, you should have just showed your own boobs. They're much better." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she uh, apparently regretted not actually just doing it herself. Sure. Yeah. So we've got these two folks, as Eric mentioned, we have Tommy who's got some great seventies facial hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a little bit of a, uh, of a, what do you got? A horseshoe mustache and then a little goatee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's uh, simultaneously awe inspiring and super gross. Um, and yeah, they're just finishing up and she keeps yelling. She's moaning, Tommy, Tommy. Uh, and then, yeah, we do get, as Eric talked about, the sort of uh, just below the neck boob double shot. Uh, but we see as as the uh, the woman is clutching one of her breasts and the other's exposed, she slowly lifts a knife. She brandishes it. And as Tommy is basking in the afterglow, she stabs him. And we get uh, this shot of her sort of staring down at him. And all of a sudden, her face, uh, there's a cut and it flashes. And we see the face of an older man um, who we don't know yet. But we will. We'll know quite well. Uh, And then it flashes back to the Lady in Lavender. And that was apparently a surprise for the actors who weren't aware that they were. That that was kind of a last minute decision Don Coscarelli made to do that cut. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to talk about that a little bit later because we do oh, get sorry. this. No, that's all right. We get this again. Um, but we haven't been introduced to the other character yet, but in due time. Um, so then it's daytime, uh, and it, this is Morningside Cemetery. We see the cemetery gates. Uh, two of our main characters, Jody and Reggie, are in their nice suits. Uh, they're united for a funeral. They can't believe that their buddy Tommy is gone. It is the end of the trio, as they call it. Uh, supposedly he killed himself. Um, and they're both just kind of in shock. And Jody uh, pardons himself for a second. He's going to go ahead inside and check on somebody. Um, turns out he's checking in on his dead parents. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so we we get our first shots of the inside of the mausoleum, and this is what we talked about in the intro. It's that uh, that single set that they would just redecorate and rotate, and uh, it looks great. I think. And yeah, it does. Yeah, another note about it was that they um, you know they struggled for a while to recreate the look of this like marble mausoleum, and as with many things in the movie, it was Don Coscarelli's mom. That basically said, hey, you know what? You can just buy marble contact paper mm-hmm. uh, and tape it all over everything. And it looks just like marble. And you know what? It looks pretty good. It does. Yeah, I think it looks really good. Yeah. Um, so Mike is looking, or not not Mike, sorry, Jody, uh, is looking at his parents' crypt. Uh, we see their names, Jody Sr. and Ann Pearson, deceased 1977. So this movie came out in 79. So this is recent. Uh, they passed away in the last year or two. Um while he's walking around the mausoleum, there's strange noises from down different hallways, kind of drawing his attention. We don't see where any of the noises are coming from. Um, outside, we meet Mike. We haven't been introduced to him yet, but this is Jody's younger brother, who is terrassing around the graveyard on a dirt bike. No helmet. No, nothing. Eric, you ever ridden a dirt bike? Um... No, I haven't. I don't think I have. I've been on the back of my dad's motorcycle, mm-hmm. and I've ridden. I had a Vespa for some years. That's right. <laughs> Pretty similar, but, right? But never a dirt bike, yeah. Did you ever jump your Vespa off of a dirt pile? No, I never did. I did wipe out once uh, okay. in front of a group of people. That was embarrassing. But. <laughs> people you knew or just strangers? Nah, just strangers. Yeah, better that <laughs> I think I like, waved at like, <laughs> is, like a fellow riders. Uh-huh. And, you, know, you wave at them as, you, as you're wont to do, and uh-huh. it immediately hit like a dirt patch and just like <laughs> wiped out. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I only tried to ride a dirt bike once, and I think this is not an uncommon occurrence, but... So I was like standing on the ground. I revved it and immediately sent the bike flying. Like, oh just, yeah, yeah. Just like wasn't fully on the bike, and it just ran out from underneath me and like skidded off into the bushes. Yeah, there's. I was much too much. I was too big of a pussy to do that kind of stuff. Usually, yeah, it's not when for I was me. A kid. Yeah, no. now I'm now I'm too big too. I'm just like uh, I don't want to look like one of those guys in the Guinness Book of World Records, you know. <laughs> Two, this two the, brothers, the twins, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd look like on a dirt. That bike. is, you're being so mean to yourself. I mean, I don't know. I had to, I had to go to clothes shopping today. I spent some time looking in the mirror. So, yeah. oh well, hey man, we're all just trying, we're all just trying to get by. I think you look great. Thanks, I appreciate it. You never see me below the waist though, or the chest. It's just nipples and up on this camera. I'd love to see you below the waist, but you never let me. You never <laughs> let me into your heart. Ah, anyways, Mike's riding his bike around the graveyard. It stalls out, uh, and he struggles to get it going again. Meanwhile, he hears some odd noises, kind of similar to the ones that Jody was hearing inside. He looks over uh, to one end of the cemetery, and uh, some sort of small figure that we barely catch disappears behind a gravestone. Uh, And then he looks again across the cemetery, and similarly... uh, we maybe make out, I don't know, the details of, like, the the bottom of a robe, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know what it is, obviously. You guys should, too. But, I don't know, preserving the mystery? I don't know why. <laughs> uh, back inside, Jody hears more noises, so he goes to investigate. Uh, and he sees the similar thing that Mike's been seeing outside. He uh, Just disappearing around a corner is another small figure with the robe trailing behind. Uh he pursues further, 
And as he's sort of creeping along, trying to figure out what the hell's going on, uh, he is stopped suddenly by a firm hand on his shoulder. And he turns around. And now we are introduced officially to the tall man. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the tall man? Uh, I like the tall man generally. So he, what he says is something like, the funeral's about to start, sir. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is a line that like gets quoted, I suppose, mm-hmm. and it, like apparently made everybody jump in the theater. Yeah, and I do, th- I do like Angus Scrim in this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't like the line delivery on that line though. <laughs> it kind of like <laughs> it's like it's very hokey. Yeah, but I guess like I guess you could say like well he is an otherworldly being that's sure. like, trying to be human, but it's 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 a strange delivery on that. that line. Yeah, there's something a little like 30s. Horror yes. about his whole vibe. Yeah, it's it, like very, yeah. and I think intentionally so because he, he was very much inspired by, you know, like Boris Karloff and yeah. uh, Lugosi. Yeah, um, you know, that kind of thing. Totally. Yeah, you can see that in the performance. But yeah, this line delivery is a little funny, but I don't know. It sticks with me, uh, so I don't mind it. It's very memorable. <laughs> uh, yeah. Jody responds, "Okay, sir." <laughs> the, fir- the first of many kind of like I'm not sure it's specifically a joke, but it reads like a joke line, and I chuckle a little bit. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, so then we're inside, uh, you know, the funeral parlor, the r- r- you know whatever room the the casket's in. Uh, they're doing the the line, like I don't want to say receiving line, but kind of corpse receive yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can. A corpse can receive people, but oh, that's, that's for when we cover ne- necromantic. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. No, that was good. <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> I'll keep going. Uh, <laughs> no, um, yeah, and so Reggie and uh, Jody are standing in the line, and Reggie mentions it's good that Jody didn't let his little brother come because after their parents' funeral, he had nightmares for weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we jump ahead. It's it's burial time. They're out in the cemetery, and Mike is watching this whole affair from from bushes far off. With he's got a pair of binoculars. Binoculars, yeah, yeah. Nobody uses binoculars anymore, and I think that's no, a shame. they don't. Yeah. It is a shame. I like binoculars. I'll bring them back in my first feature. Okay. 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 Yeah. Great. I'll call everybody's binoculars. just looking in everybody's windows. It's a real yeah. pervy feature. It's like a Twilight Zone episode where people can only see with binoculars. So oh, everyone's man. just you know, it could be like a metaphor for cell phones or something. Yeah, yeah. We're all just viewing each other from a distance. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, live in the moment, man. Just a bunch of uh, of zoomers at a concert watching through <laughs> binoculars instead of enjoying it the way God intended. Looking at their phone through binoculars. <laughs> <laughs> I think we really got something here. Um, so, yeah, Mike watches Jody and the rest of the pallbearers, six or so of them, uh, hauling the coffin out of the hearse and then bringing it over to the burial site. Funeral wraps up. Uh, everybody leaves, but Mike, he's still watching. And, and what he witnesses uh, boggles the mind. He watches the tall man <laughs> walk over to the coffin, pick it up by himself, kind of sidearms it. And uh, just tosses it right into the back of the hearse. And we get this hilarious shot of Mike pulling the binoculars away from his face and then just very clearly mouthing, what the the fuck? fuck? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Then we cut to Mike walking down the street. 
in front of a psychic, we get a cool little psychic like red yeah. handprint sign. Uh, and this is also where we get the first strains of, of what's we talked about, kind of that official phantasm theme. Yeah. Um, which I, you guys... I, it, I never remember how it goes, but whenever I hear it, I'm like, that's a phantasm theme. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you guys haven't watched the movie in a while, throw it on the old Spotify while you listen to the podcast. Just turn it down a little bit and make a great soundtrack to, to this. Uh, keep things spooky, right? Uh, so Mike heads up to the psychic and a, a blonde girl about his age. She's got a little star. I don't know if it's a tattoo or a print, you know, like a a stamp or something underneath their eye. Yeah, um, they're they're in the apparently in the novelization that Don mm-hmm. Coscarelli's mother wrote for the oh, really? for the movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're called the stars, like the star. Okay. Not siblings, because it's like mother and daughter, but yeah, almost it's grandmother and granddaughter. Yeah, I think yeah. And um, the she was actually a, a bigger part in the movie that but got cut in like yeah. those initial cuts. That makes sense. Yeah, she feels like one of the sort of extant parts of the movie. Yeah, um, she's like supposed to be one of the first victims. In well, the, we do we see that. Yeah, we do see that. Oh um, yes, you're right. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very short, and there's not much to it. But we we'll, we'll get there shortly. Um. So he, uh, she answers the door. He asks to speak to her grandmother. Uh, so he gets seated inside at, like, you know, the fortune-telling table or whatever. And um, the whole deal is, like, she speaks for the grandmother and then he, you know, like a translator, uh, but non-verbally, right? So, mm-hmm. so the grandmother is com- communicating with her telepathically. Um, and so Mike asks, uh, they ask what he's here for, and he explains, well, it's Jody again. Uh, and he found out that Jody's leaving. And then we kind of go into, I'll call it flashback mode, but this is really the first time that the movie demonstrates that there's a sort of dreamlike n- like nature to the narrative at times, where there aren't these clear, like that we don't get the wavy like lines, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's a, it's a hazy flashback. It's just like you kind of got to piece it together yourself. Because all of a sudden, we're just in a completely different scene. Uh, Jody and Mike are ripping around town in their Cuda, that hot black Cuda we talked about. Um, and they get home. Mike immediately hops out of the car and gets underneath with a wrench to make some adjustments. And uh, a buddy of Jody's shows up uh, to catch up with him. He's in town for the funeral. Uh, and he basically just says, yeah, man, like you're this Tommy's dead. Your parents died. You must fucking want to get out of here. Right. Like I heard you've been out on the road and stuff. And do you think that when he says on the road, do you think he's talking about me- music? Do we think that Jody's like, a yeah, musician? I think Jody, like uh, also Bill Thornberry played him mm. is also a musician. I think Jody is supposed to be like a traveling musician. Okay. Yeah. So they reference that, and Jody's like, yeah, yeah, man. And now that, you know, the kid's 13, you know, he's thinking of sending him to, off to live with his aunt, which is like a weird thing to say with yeah. <laughs> with him underneath the car. But again, it's like, wait, are we like seeing different pieces of different conversations and stuff? It's very, It's all kind of unclear. And that is sort of part of the magic of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's like things are a little bit confusing, but it the way it's done and the way Coscarelli pulls it off, I feel like it almost never, it it rare, I shouldn't say almost never, but most of the time it doesn't feel like that, that true like B movie 
even C movie kind of thing. Like, well, this just doesn't make any fucking sense at all. Like, what the hell? Like, it feels deliberate, right? That things are a little off. Yeah, and I think it's something that can be, like, it's a complaint that I think is leveled against it Mm -hmm. for first-timers. Yeah. Kind of watching it, and then the more you watch it, like, the more its dream logic kind of works on you. Yeah, yeah, because it's not the the last time that we're going to have this sort of dreamlike sequence taking place. But anyways, we get a little more uh, fill-in for Jody and Mike's relationship. Mike follows Jody everywhere. Jody loves him, and he's a tough kid. He's been through a lot, but clearly Jody also is looking, you know, to move on. Like, he doesn't want to be stuck at home anymore. Yeah, he's like 25. He won't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he likes to fuck. He likes to fuck. It's hard to fuck with your kid brother around. Um, I you know. Been there. I have been there. <laughs> Not many times, but a few. Um, anyways, uh, so all of a sudden we're back at the psychic and the, the old psychic grandma tells Mike not to worry. Cause if, if Jody does leave, he's going to take him with, uh, and he says, well, he hopes that's true. And then kind of, um, my therapist, I, she has a term for this. I think she calls it the doorknob where it's mm-hmm. like, like a, like a client is on the way out the door and they're like, oh yeah, by the way. I wanted to tell you something else that's much more important than the thing we just talked about (laughs) for the the last 50 minutes. So so Mike pulls one of these where he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I saw this scary ass old uh, funeral guy uh, one handed a coffin by himself. (laughs) And 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 we get a very funny full replay of that scene. Like it just like all the same shots and cuts. It just happens again. Yeah. but then we get a little extra detail at the end that Mike rides off on his bike after he sees this. And I guess the tall man knocks him off his bike with his mind. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, you're, you're led to believe that the tall man like psychically pushes him or something. Right. But then no follow up. He gets back on the bike and he goes home. Yeah. So, so at this point, he's just being an asshole. Um, so we're back in the psychic and the grandmother, she wants to play a little game. And then all of a sudden, uh, out of thin air, a box appears in the middle it's of the crazy. table. It's crazy. It just yeah. appears. <laughs> it's totally insane. Mike's like, how'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we literally just have a scene from the novel Dune. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like fully lifted from Dune. Not inspired by. Just uh, completely this, lifted, yeah. Just completely lifted from Dune, where uh, she tells Mike to put his hand inside the box uh, and then the hand kind of gra- the box grabs his hand and he can't get it out. And then he starts feeling intense pain. And the whole time the the granddaughter is just repeating the mantra at him, "Don't fear, don't fear." And uh, you know, I guess he succeeds or fails in fearing. It's not totally clear, but yeah. eventually he gets his hand back from the box, and and he gets you know the little explanation that it's like, yeah, this was a test. Uh, Fear is the killer. What, yeah. what the, and what's the you know the line from Dune? It's like, isn't it's, it fear is the mind killer or something? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so they took mind out at least. <laughs> but literally, I think the line is fear is the killer, and then it's all in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, just a good lesson, I guess. Maybe this will come up later. It's not entirely clear how this really applies to anything. Um, he leaves, and then they both laugh at him. <laughs> it's a really weird scene um so next we get the psychic granddaughter walking 
up to Morningside Cemetery, perhaps to investigate some of Mike's claims. Um, then we're back at Jody and Mike's house. Reg pulls up out front in his insane-looking ice cream truck. Yeah, it looks like old-timey <laughs> ice cream truck. Yeah, like the the what is it? The the cab is open, right? Yeah. So it's like a convertible, convertible. in the front. Yeah, but then it's the back of it is all like a refrigerated box truck. Um, Apparently, they had to like drive it back in the rain from like a distant shoot, oh, no. with, like with like somebody in like a trash bag to just stay. <laughs> oh God. Uh, yeah, so this is how we find out that Reg is an ice cream man. Also, for anybody who doesn't remember or who hasn't seen the movie, important to note, Reggie, beautiful, virile sort of look of a man with a long, dark ponytail and completely bald. Yeah. Male pattern baldness on the top, but then hair on the back and the sides with a, with a, a healthy ponytail. Yeah. He's a musician. He just kind of like wowed the crew, and he was in uh, Jim's Jim the World's Greatest. Yeah, Don loved him, and he's a, char- a real character. <laughs> yeah, he truly is. You get the impression in this movie and throughout the rest of the films uh, that he shows up in that he's pretty much just playing himself. Yes. Um, yeah, and and I will say that he's very charming and like he's a very welcome presence in all of the movies. And I just love, like, one of the things about sort of indie filmmaking like this is, uh, you know, mild spoiler, as we move forward, he will move into, at points in time, uh, sort of a leading man role in this Uh series. Uh And he is not a guy that Hollywood would ever allow to sniff a leading role. Oh, never. Probably, just solely because of the way that he looks, which... Like, to be clear, he's not some sort of gargoyle. He's just a guy with male pattern baldness. He's just kind of like a normal-looking guy. Yeah, but he's great, and I think he does really well. And so that's one of the great things about this is it's like you get to see people who look like regular people in movies, and not everyone has to be a fucking Adonis, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways, although Jody kind of, like, totally fills that role. But, you know, whatever. Right. So, uh, anyways, diversion over. Reg runs up to the uh, to the front stoop of the house where Jody is jamming out very, very quietly um, <laughs> with an electric guitar and a Fender amp that were also gifted to the production uh, by right. Fender. Right. Uh, Reg pulls out his acoustic guitar and jumps in, and they have what I would consider to be a fairly respectable jam session. Yeah, both both talented musicians. Yeah. They're both actually actually playing their guitars. Apparently, Bill Thornberry re-recorded this song for like an album of his or something. <laughs> That's a good yeah. call. It's yeah. not a bad song. No. Um, I think Reggie cuts it off a little bit early, but that's probably, you know, for time purposes. Uh, and then he delivers one of my favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> they wrap up. He goes, we're hot as love, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just to know, buddy. <laughs> Uh, then he whips out an old school tuning fork uh, to tune up the guitar, and, you know, whacks it on the side of the guitar and listens to it. And then he sort of uh, very deliberately takes two fingers and touches them to the two prongs of the tuning fork to stop. Mm-hmm. May or may not come back later. I doubt uh, it. Fair enough. Back inside the mausoleum, the psychic uh, granddaughter is snooping around. Uh, she comes to a door at the end of a hallway that has sort of like 
uh, a sculpture wall piece above it with the heads of many looks like Greek or perhaps Roman, uh, you know, sculpture style faces. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of cool looking. She opens the door, uh, and a la, you know, like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, we don't see what's behind the door. We just see this bright, bright light shine on her face. And then we're outside the exterior of the funeral home, and we simply hear her screams from a distance. Uh, and, yeah, we never see her again. No, she's gone. <laughs> she's totally gone. Yeah, and originally this is supposed to, like, propel Mike mm-hmm. to want to investigate further. And This is, like, more of the inciting incident. I will say that it would help to have a little bit more explanation, but I also... I do understand. I mean, obviously, none of us has ever seen this original cut of the movie with all this extra exposition and, like, character stuff. Right. I think they made a good call to make this a trimmer film that moves pretty quickly. Yeah. And and I will say that, like, that kind of dreamlike uh, mood that the whole movie has, it, like, that it benefits at times from some of the disjointedness that I think was probably unavoidable because of the cuts that they made. Um, this is just my, my two cents though. Um, all right. So anyways, uh, it's nighttime. We've got Jody rolling up in the Cuda to the dunes cantina Mm -hmm. where there is one incredibly convenient parking spot right next to the front door. (laughs) No one is using it. Um, so he, you know, obviously takes that spot. Uh, he rolls inside. There's some funky jams. Uh, and there's uh there's a couple people in there and there's there's one solo hottie at the bar and Jody gets a beer and immediately makes a beeline for her. Mm-hmm. It's revealed to us that Mike is snooping on Jody from across the street. We don't know exactly where he is. He's looking through a window. Yeah, through a window. So he must have broken into someone else's home or establishment. No, I, the think dunes he, I think can't... he's looking into the window of the dunes. But no, he's looking out a window. Across the street into the window of the dunes. Is he? I'm looking at it right now. He's, he's, I think, I thought he was. You think yeah, he's just, who, I mean, it doesn't really matter, I guess. Okay. But, yeah. Either way, uh, the geographies of it, of, of it is a little bit confusing, but we see Jody gets his beer. He sits down next to the woman at the bar who we can't really quite make out yet. Uh, she looks attractive, though. He's interested. He puts in, Almost no effort whatsoever. Clearly trained in the pickup arts. Um, <laughs> yeah, mystery taught yeah, him well. He studied, studied under, directly under the tutelage of mystery. Um, and yeah, like five seconds later, they both get up and leave together. Mm-hmm. Um, they step outside and it's the lady in lavender. Uh, he, he, uh, it, she is clearly moving things along at a fast clip because he's kind of like, yeah. So, anyways, where is she? and she's like, just grabs him and they and they walk off on a little sexy stroll. She's hot to trot. That's right. Uh, Mike tailing close behind. Uh, they make their way to the cemetery. Go figure. Uh, she asks him what the only thing to do in this town is, and then literally doesn't let him answer. Just like <laughs> he gets two words out and then starts making out with him. And this is one of those times when I am grateful for how paranoid I am specifically about why uh, a beautiful woman would ever want to make out with me because I would have had so many questions. Sure. Yeah. uh, And suspicions at a moment like this. So I think that my, 
my uh, alert system would have would have saved me from any um, ill intent. In a situation I think me like as this. well. Yeah. Like, what's your game here? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> what's, what's what's your deal? Uh, <laughs> who put you up to this? Uh, so they're making out. Uh, then um, things start getting hot and heavy. They, uh, you know, similar to the situation with Tommy, they're down on the ground and between some graves. They're going for it. We get another different boob double shot. This one's a little bit better than the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's laying flat on her back, which I think uh, does more favors to what I believe are um, some some implants. Um, so, anyways, <laughs> just for for anybody who's keeping track at home, Mister Skinhead. Somebody was paying attention. <laughs> Mister Skinheads. That's not a great name. Mister um, <laughs> Skinheads. <laughs> <laughs> anyways. Jody sees the the boobs. He goes, wow. Immediately, Mike from the bushes watching them also goes, wow. Wow, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty funny. Uh, And then Eric was mentioning up top the sort of discomfort with these sex scenes. So also, Bill Thornberry uh, playing Jody, also not pumped to do a sex scene. They have to use a body double to do this butt shot where he takes his underwear down. You got a crew member to do it. Yeah, and... uh, yeah, it's I mean, he's a fine ass, but I again I think I think if Thornberry's mom was in the audience of the theater, she would have had similar advice. Yeah, so. your ass is probably better than this guy's. It's true. Some yeah. Grip. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like the best boy's ass. Um, so uh, then uh, Mike, who's watching from the bushes, starts to hear some of those familiar weird noises again, uh, louder than before this time. And after a few tense moments of looking around, uh, a little figure in a robe mm-hmm. rushes at him. Uh, now, I have it on good authority that this is definitely not a Jawa from Star Wars. Not a Jawa. However, Similar to a Jawa. <laughs> you, would be, you would be forgiven for mistaking it for a Jawa because it looks exactly like a Jawa. Yeah. And it um, wasn't, uh, you know, Star Wars hadn't come out yet or it was like not out yet. Yeah, they had already shot these little guys before Star Wars was released. So just the second time that uh, George Lucas came and fucked up one of the concepts for Phantasm. Yeah. Um, but anyways, the non-Jawa rushes at Mike. He runs screaming like a bat out of hell out of the bushes. Um, this obviously inter- a little coitus interruptus for Jody. Whose head pops up with uh, the lavender lady's panties, panties between in his, his teeth? In her mouth, in his mouth, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He can, he talks with the panties in his mouth. It's a fun touch. What the heck? And tells her to wait here. It's my little brother. And then he gives chase. He's he's pulling up his pants. Still got the panties panties in his mouth. Uh, eventually, he catches up and grabs Mike. At some point in between, he dropped the panties. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike saw something, and he knows it's going to get him. He says uh, it was little and brown and low to the ground. Low to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, Ken and I were watching, and immediately she thought he was talking about our dog, Bowie, uh, (laughs) who's a real low rider. He's he's like a little wiener mix, wiener pug kind of guy. So, yeah, he stays real close to the ground, and he's brown, Uh, and he's little. Jody proposes that perhaps it was just a gopher in heat. <laughs> uh, Which is a great line. It's it's along with like hot as love. It's yeah. one of the more famous lines from the movie. There are some funny little throwaway lines in this movie for sure. Uh anyways, he wants to get back to the lady in the cemetery. 
gives Mike a little shit for cop blocking him, but it's all, you know, it's all brotherly love stuff. Uh, gives Mike the keys to the CUDA and sends him home. He's 13. <laughs> He's 13, but he was already driving the CUDA earlier. You know, yeah. he, he, you know, he rips around town in that thing. Um, he heads back to the cemetery and the lady in lavender is long gone. Um, so we're back at the house. Mike is asleep in his bed underneath a knit blanket that made me incredibly nostalgic for being at my grandparents' house when I was Oh, like yeah, my grandparents six. had these too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like blankets that just don't exist anymore. We call them Afghans, which I don't know if that's yeah. offensive somehow. I don't think so. I mean, it would just, I think they were referred to, like, I think there were blankets that probably were famously made in Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. We call it an Afghan. I mean, I could be totally wrong. I'm probably not the right guy to weigh in, like, you know, to give the final word on this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say I hope that that's not offensive. But yes, they also called them Afghans in my family too. Uh, anyways, don't back me up on that. Um, so I think you just did a really bad thing here. <laughs> I think you just effectively got yourself and this podcast canceled, sir. So you know, All move right. it on. Well, at least I don't have to. <laughs> Write any more fucking recaps. Uh, <laughs> just what page, I, I, what page are you on, by the way? I am on page... Which page is this? I'm on page two of six. Okay. Yeah. We're doing all right. I mean, how much time are we in? Oh, 40 minutes? Well, we talked about Arclight for 10 minutes at the We're time. 25 minutes into the movie. <laughs> I'm following along here on my iPad. <laughs> You son of a bitch. That's why you, that's why you won't make eye contact with me. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you're right. I was kind of like just looking along as we were talking. It's, play, it's playing out in real time. All right, you ready? We're going to go micro-machines on this motherfucker. Um, so anyways, Mike kind of falls asleep. He wakes up to some wailing sounds, and the camera zooms out to reveal his bed is in the middle of the cemetery at night, and the tall man is hovering above him with his hands on the bedpost. It's very intimidating. It's a cool shot. It's, it's really a cool. great shot. Yeah. Zombie-like corpses burst from the ground on either side of the bed. And they grab at Mike while he screams. Uh, and again, we assume this is a nightmare. But mm-hmm. there's no... One of the things that I really like about this movie, there's no, like, he wakes up in a cold sweat moment. There's no, like, oh, it was just a dream. We just cut to the next scene. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in the next scene, it is daytime. Jody pulls back into his reserve parking spot in front of the canteen. <laughs> Should have a little placard with his name on it. <laughs> Jody. Uh, he heads inside. Uh, he goes through the door as we see that Mike has once again followed him to yeah. the bar. <laughs> but this time, instead of doing anything, Mike, I guess, just heads into town. So he's kind of bopping down the sidewalk, sucking on a lollipop, checks the... Uh, payphone for some quarters, checking out some store windows. All of a sudden, he freezes in his in his in his steps as he sees the tall man, kind of stomping down the opposite side of the street, and mm-hmm. we get this slow motion shot with the reverberating footsteps echoing. And I think I remember reading in Coscarelli's book that this uh, this is a thing that he remembers from from his childhood of being in a mausoleum once, and and the way that the footsteps echoed around, and how that mm. was terrifying. Yeah. Um. So the the tall man is walking down the sidewalk, and he stops just as he passes in front of Reggie, who happens to be emptying some stuff out of the back of his ice cream truck. So there's that that kind of frosty 
smoke steam yeah going everywhere what do you call that uh i guess oh that's a good question i is I it guess steam I would, it's not steam because steam is when things get so hot well mm-hmm. I, I don't know it is just like that cloudy gas right like the it's yeah, not cloud. smoke it's yeah. not smoke steam i think is hot right but maybe it's the same process as steam when it's like one form of matter yeah. getting into another form i don't know mm-hmm. I, I always yeah. call it clouds i guess so icy clouds uh, float about, uh, and the tall man turns and he glares ominously at Mike as the cold cloud <laughs> dances around him. Yeah. Uh, and then he does this weird thing where he's kind of like feeling himself, like he's got his hands out in front of him, and he's kind of looking up and takes a big, big breath in, and he's almost like smiling. Yeah. Um, and he looks like, um, like he's holding like an invisible. He's got his hands on like an invisible globe or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a, a little explanation about this. Uh-huh. Tell this me. This was. Uh, do you know like what this initially was intended to be? Well, here's my guess, and mm-hmm. you tell me how far off I am. Is it something about how he responds to cold because of where he comes from? Yes, it okay. is. Okay. So there was a cut scene later in the movie where Mike mm. sprays the tall man with a fire extinguisher, which freezes him. Okay. And this is something I think that comes up in a, in a sequel where they're like, okay. the cold is the enemy of the tall man. And this right. was supposed to establish that that like the cold from Reggie's truck, mm-hmm. um, actually froze him and made him paralyzed until the, until the clouds went away. And then he ah. like, kind of like came back to his senses and walked away. So then later, in the movie, it ended up getting cut, but like he sprays him with a fire extinguisher, mm-hmm. and we flash back to the scene where it's like, "Oh, I can use this to freeze the tall man," like that. Ah, interesting. So, yeah. but with that being cut, now it just kind of becomes a strange thing, mm-hmm. which I sort of appreciate even more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the many things in this movie that just—it's almost more memorable because it doesn't fully make sense. Mm-hmm. So it kind of le- it doesn't let your mind settle it, so you keep thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyways, the cold dissipates and, and then he moves along. Um, we cut back to Jody, who's inside the dunes uh, and he's having a beer because of course this is this is a move that I really related to as someone who has spent a, a decent amount of time working in the restaurant bar industry. And the classic like you go to the bar in the daytime to do a piece of business, but it's, you're like, well, I'm at the bar, so I'm so going to have, have a, a beer. Yeah. I'm going to have a beer while I'm here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so Jody's sitting at the bar drinking a, a cool Dos Equis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he asked the bartender if he's seen the lady from the night before. Uh, and the guy asked him, what's the matter? You got yourself into something you couldn't handle? Um, you know, Jody fills him in that she just sort of disappeared from, from the cemetery. Well, no help here. Uh, he doesn't really get any info, but he does get a delicious Dos Equis. <laughs> um, Brought to you by Dos Equis. <laughs> and Fender guitars. Uh, at home, Mike is uh, in the garage working underneath the Cuda. Cuda's up on a jack. Uh, again, we hear some of our odd sounds linked in the past to our non-Jawas. Um, you know, he looks around out from under the car. This classic, he can't see anything. And this is a real horror movie trope mm-hmm. that I I want to hear from our fans. If anybody knows where this originated, 
Um, the like running in front of the camera kind of thing. No, okay. no, like somebody, like literally someone underneath a car. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Working yeah, yeah, on sure. a car, and so something is gonna, you know, going to befall them, and they can't see. All they can see is like feet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of the uh, whoever's around them. So again, he sees people, little creatures, perhaps running just out of view. Uh, the car starts sort of rocking back and forth on the jack. Uh, and this is one of the weirder, more frustrating scenes in the whole movie for me. Uh, because he doesn't respond in any way that would make any sense. Like, he doesn't try to get out from under the car. No, the car's rocking. He's yeah. not a knocking. He's just, and like, kind of frozen a little bit. He even pulls his feet in. in There's yeah, a shot yeah. of, like, him going further under the car. Mm-hmm. Um, the camera pans around. We do get a nice shot of a case of Dos Equis on the ground. Um, and then he grabs a hammer, and just then the car comes down off the jack. And, you you know, again, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, Mike must be dead now. Yeah. Um, but then we get a shot underneath and he's just kind of pinned down. Like he can't really move. Um, then he looks and he sees a, a pair of booted feet. And so he smashes one with a hammer that is accompanied by the very comical sound effect. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's like thunk, of something like getting hit with a hammer. Uh, it's Jody who is understandably pissed hopping up and down, uh, on one foot. And then, Seemingly with zero effort or any help, Mike is just out from under the car that he was just pinned under. Yeah, it just sli- um, slides out from underneath it. Yeah, but, you know, kids, they're small. Uh, <laughs> who knows? They're stretchy. Yeah. Mike fills it's him in on what just happened. Jody doesn't believe him. Uh, oh, this is a great line. There's a line here. Uh, yeah, Mike says, oh, no, it was those little creatures. And then Jody goes, are you sure it wasn't that... Uh, R-worded kid Timmy from up the street. <laughs> I uh, laughed. I laughed at that. Not because I our... think it's funny, but because yeah. you know, you know, you laugh because you're like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, it's I, jarring I, in this day. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, I guess that was. But you know, we are of the generation that like that's that's something that went out with us. You know? Oh yeah, that was like ten years. Ago. Sorry, that was like ten years ago. That that was I would say probably fif- fifteen. You know, no, for ten, my, for ten for me, fifteen in our house. But <laughs> I yeah, hung sure. on for a while. <laughs> I'm like, I'm no, I want to take it back. I'm not letting go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you can say it because yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, later up in his room, Mike uh, straps on his ankle knife and throws on his denim jacket, and he heads out to Morningside on his own. And this is you were talking about. I guess the the death of the uh, the psychic granddaughter is kind of what precipitated this uh-huh. this journey to a certain degree. Um, he climbs over the locked fence to Morningside and heads towards the mausoleum uh, or the funeral home, I should say. He finds a basement window and kicks it in. And yeah, then, just kicks it in. <laughs> yeah, this kid's a little badass. He drives a cooter around. He works on the car. Yeah, uh, he's kicking in windows. He drives a dirt bike. I mean, he's kind of every 15, no, 13. What do we think he is? 13, 12? He's 13. He's 13. He's every 13. Well, he had his 13th idol. birthday while shooting this movie. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, he climbs in through the broken glass window pretty haphazardly. Um, finds himself sort of in a dark storage room. He makes his way out 
into what appears to be like a casket showroom, right? Where you might shop for your different options. Um, and is immediately startled as someone seems to be entering. Uh, it's a weird looking caretaker guy who's got yeah. like, he's got like sort of wispy blonde hair. He looks like, like Ralph a little bit from Friday the 13th. Yeah. But he has like, I think eye makeup on. He's a weird and, looking guy. Yeah. And yeah, it, he has like a goofy little bucket hat. Anyways. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So he comes in. And we see that Mike has jumped inside a casket that he's just holding the lid ajar with his lighter Mm -hmm. um, so he can kind of see what's going on. And the caretaker pretty much makes a beeline for the casket that Mike's in. And he even gets his hands on it as he's about to lift it open when the tall man appears at the door and kind of beckons him away to help with something. So it's a super close call. Mike gets out and... You know, after a close call like that, you know, obviously he's going to leave, right? He's going to go Of course, that would be the right thing to do. That would be the right thing to do. But if that's what you thought he was going to do, you're wrong. (laughs) Because instead he just boldly goes exploring the open halls of the mausoleum. Um, And this is where we get our first glimpse of the much ballyhooed, the previously mentioned Silver Ball. Yeah. Does it have an official name? I forget. Uh... I don't know, actually. Drone, maybe? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I can well, look it up. Yeah, for now, we're going to call it Silver Ball. Um, it flies down the hallway towards Mike. Um, you know, maybe six, seven feet in the air. He hits the deck, and it whips right over his head. Uh, and in a second, we'll talk about some of the special effects for this, I think. But I just The Sentinels is what they the call The Sentinels. It. That's right. I knew that. Um yeah, so he hits the deck and the sentinel whips right over the top of his head. Yeah. High speed. Um, he gets up just in time uh, for the caretaker to sneak up on him from behind, grabs him, wraps his arms around him. He's, wearing, he's ball- definitely wearing eye makeup, like okay. you said. Yeah, definitely wearing eye makeup. The ball starts heading back in their direction. So Mike, with this guy's arms wrapped around his chest, does the only thing he can. He chomps down on his arm. Real hard. Gruesomely. Blood coming out and everything. Ton of blood. So apparently uh, the actor had to hold all that blood in his mouth for like the whole shot and was oh, very, wow. it was very gross. Um, but yeah, we get all this blood pouring from where he's biting the guy's arm. The ball's hurtling towards them. And we get this profile shot, which I suspect is like a in-camera kind of double exposure thing. We see the ball hurtling towards them and then we, these two spikes emerge from the front just ready to stab somebody mm-hmm. um mike wriggles free just in time and gets out of the way as the ball lands on the caretaker's head like hits him right between the eyes mm-hmm. and we get another profile view the spikes lodge into his head and then a drill it like extends from the middle of it protrudes from the front of the ball and starts drilling right between his eyes. Yeah, right between the eyes. And there's a big spurt of blood. And then we see that that a stream of blood starts to spurt from like a hole in the, on the other side of the ball. Uh-huh. So it's like, so the guy's holding the ball against his head, like writhing in pain as a fountain of blood. Yeah, it's like a juice or something. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's like it's juicing his brain and shooting all of the blood. And there's like little chunks in it and shit. It's fucking Um, awesome. It it looks fantastic. 
total fountain of blood, finally fully drained. The caretaker falls to the ground as somewhat unnecessarily a pool of urine leaks out between his legs. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's pause for a second. Yeah. And, and yeah, do you want to do want to talk at all about some of uh, some of the stuff that unfolds in this scene from yeah, a technical so perspective? We we covered a little bit of it yesterday, but it, it's done with rev- uh, at least the initial like hit into mm-hmm. the guy's head was done with like a reverse uh, the camera upside down, reverse the film, right? Um, and then the uh, for that profile close up, they had an actual like drill piece come and drill into like a pad of makeup essentially mm-hmm. on, on, on the guy's forehead, with like a little plastic shield behind it. Yeah. And, and, um, then apparently the blood hose that was attached to a bucket that was like hidden mm-hmm. up his, up his sleeve all, you know, out of sight, um, got clogged or something. And they were like, yeah. blow, blow and it, like blowing harder. And then boom, if all kind of, you get a couple of good spurts and then like, boom, it, like that big jet comes out. Yeah. This is a story very reminiscent of, uh, Kevin Bacon's death scene in Friday the 13th. Yeah, exactly. With yeah. Tom Savini, they, a happy accident where, uh, they blew out too much blood at once and it ends up looking great. Like a yeah. great realistic spurt. Um, um some, so yeah, that, that's what I had on that. Cool. Some of the other stuff that I really like about this scene uh, it's just like, so all of this is practical. Obviously, it's 1978 when they're shooting most of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the ball movement is it's just fishing line. Uh, right. So like, for instance, there's a scene where the ball comes around a corner and they literally just did it like pendulum style where they just like there's a line connected to the ceiling and they just kind of swung it out around the corner and then, you know, ran the film back fast. And it looks it looks really good. And then there's other scenes where it's flying through the air and it's on a fishing line like that goes in one end and comes out the other you know right, so it's right so it just sort of the ball slides along the line as it's strung but then on top of that we have scenes like the one where where mike is on the ground and the ball flies over his head and the story behind that is one of the guys on the crew was a high school baseball pitcher who could mm-hmm. who could throw 65 70 miles an hour and they literally just had Mike jump on the ground, and then the guy whipped a fucking ball. <laughs> and it was, the, yeah, the ball's just going, he just threw a ball 60 miles an hour, and that's why it's flying through the air. And I think that's, they did that for a couple different scenes. And I mean, that's the stuff that I love where it's just like, there are a lot of things when you hear how they did it in this movie, where it's like, oh yeah, they just did it the way that you or I would do it. Like with no real knowledge of special effects where you're just like, well, we got to figure out how to make this look like this. Right. Um, There's a scene, there's a door scene later in the movie that I'll talk about that has a very similar vibe to it. Uh, But anyways, that's enough of a tangent. Back to the story. Uh, So, yeah, urine on the ground. Caretaker's dead. Mike jumps up and the tall man has appeared at the end of the hallway. (laughs) And Mike goes, um, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) and then instead of immediately running they sort of pace towards each other like calmly in sort of like almost a reverse duel fashion Mm -hmm. and it turns out that mike's trying to get as close as he can to the hallway he came through he takes off running and the tall man immediately takes chase is right behind him mike's sprinting he makes it back to the casket showroom Tall man's just out of arm's reach. 
he leaps through the storage room door, turns around and shuts it, and he bars it. You know, there's like a, a piece of wood that braces the door mm-hmm. um, uh, to keep the tall man from getting in. And we hear him banging on the other side of the door, but it seems like for now Mike's safe. And then he looks up to his left and he sees that the tall man's hand is stuck in the door. Yeah. Uh, and, and all the fingers are through the door on the other side and his hands moving around. Mike yelps and then takes his knife and just lops off all his fingers. Yeah. Uh, and this is such a great moment. I love uh, it. Yeah. It's, it's yellow blood shoots out like this thick yellow blood and the yeah. fingers like fall to the ground. Spouting from the stumps where the fingers used to be. It's gruesome. It looks great. We get this really inhuman scream that then turns into almost like demonic kind of moaning mm-hmm. from behind the door. And yeah, like Eric said, the fingers are all wriggling on the floor. So Mike on his way out, he picks one up and he he like opens up his little shirt pocket and drops it in. Drops his finger in. <laughs> Which is a smart move. Uh, so he heads back to the window where he came from. And just then two uh, of the Jawa dwarfs pop out from the shadows and they and they chase him down. He barely makes it out the window. One of them gets a hold of his right foot, pulls his sneaker off, but he's able to escape the classic, you know, mm-hmm. pull your arm out of the jacket, pull your foot out of the sneaker escape move. Um, and then Mike runs home in the darkness, um, begging the question of whether or not the dirt bike might have come in handy uh, on yeah, this, I on this that night away. mission. Yeah, yeah but uh, no, running home with one shoe on. <laughs> Uh, so then the next morning we see Mike passed out on the stairs at his house. He's clutching a shotgun. A shotgun. He has like <laughs> full access to yeah. firearms. One more reason why this little 13 year old kid's a total badass. Uh, and there's a little box on the steps next to him, presumably holding the finger and sort of jumping and wiggling around like some Mexican jumping beans. Um, Jody wakes up. He comes upon this little scene. He, you know, gently takes the shotgun from Mike's arms and unloads it, wakes him up. They're outside, and Mike gives Jody the rundown. One of the things I appreciate about this movie, they don't always do this, but they do a good job here, is it's like you as the viewer know what happens. So you don't have to, they don't make you sit through Jody listening to the story. Right. We just like cut to the part where Mike has just finished telling this crazy story. We know exactly what he told him. And he tells him, hey, open up the box and see for yourself. So Jody, you know, he cautiously opens it up and and there it is inside. Uh, you know, and I, you know, the first time I saw this, I'm like, oh, it's going to be something else, you know. And he's going to be like, damn it, I swear it was real. But right. But there it is. The wiggly finger. It's in a puddle of yellow goop. The blood's kind of like coagulating. Right. Uh, looks and it's, it's wriggling around. It looks really good. Um yeah, like the fucking blood looks like baby food. <laughs> yeah, which is gross enough as it is. Yeah. Um, Mike, uh, or Jody goes, okay, I believe you. Jesus. <laughs> um, so they have some more conversation. They're back inside. Jody decides they're going to go to the cops, and he tells Mike to go uh, back up to his room and grab the box. Mike gets up there, and he notices the box has stopped moving, uh, and he's kind of suspicious. He opens it up to discover, um, I'm going to call it a giant uh, glowing red-eyed demon fly with big, weirdly human teeth. Yeah, it really doesn't look good. (laughs) But it's weird. It is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, definitely not like high quality, but I think it's strange enough that it doesn't bother me too much because I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck it's really supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't it can't necessarily look bad because it is it's very much its own thing, right? Maybe that's what demon flies really look like. Yeah, um, we can only assume. We can only yeah, we can only guess and wonder. Uh, so the fly <laughs> comes flying out, uh, disappears for a second. Mike realizes it's on top of his head. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of moving around. It's like a little bit of a comedic scene. And like he yeah. like wraps it up in his jacket. Mm-hmm. It's like he's having to like flop it all around. Like it's like super strong. Yeah. And, and then like Jody gets in on walls. it. Yeah. yeah they're yeah, both yeah. wrestling this shirt around. It's just like a lot of basically pantomime work. Right. Yeah. Um, they go down into the kitchen. Yeah, if I remember correctly, and then they're like, "Get into the, get into the disposal, get into yeah. the disposal, the garbage disposal," which is as good an idea as any, I guess. Yeah, of course. Um, so they cram it into the garbage disposal. They run it, and uh, you know, they both pause for a second, totally out of breath. Just then, a knock on the door. Reggie strolls into the house, all yeah. casual, like wants to know if uh, if Mike can come help him run the uh ice cream truck because you know the, it's gonna be ice cream it's hot outside the ice cream's gonna be moving fast and furious <laughs> uh which i believe is where they got the name of of the famous film franchise yeah famously yeah, yeah. It, it literally is yeah reggie's ice cream ice cream yeah uh reggie's like can't really tell what the fuck's going on they're both totally speechless the fly re-emerges from the sink they have a little extra 20 second tussle they get yeah. it back into the garbage disposal, properly finish the job this time. Reggie's like, what the fuck? What the fuck's going on? <laughs> uh, so we kind of have a hard cut to the guys are arming themselves. And Jody gives Mike like a, a very tight 30-second gun safety course. And he says, mm-hmm. now remember, you don't even have a gun at a man unless you intend to shoot him. You don't shoot a man unless you intend to kill him. No warning shots. Are you listening to me? No warning shots. Warning shots are bullshit. You shoot to kill or you don't shoot at all. Which, honestly, like, you know, I'm not a huge supporter of guns, but that seems like solid gun logic. Yeah. 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 Also, funny that he's a musician or something. Like, giving <laughs> this advice and not look like a military man or whatever. Yeah, it's the 70s, though, you know? It's, yeah. All musicians also are trained in weaponry. <laughs> yeah, it's a pack. Pack yeah. heat. Um, so, (laughs) yeah. Uh, so, but then like after all this gun talk and shit, then Jody's headed over on his own, uh, back to Morningside. Um, Mike basically tells him, okay, heading through the same broken basement window. I'm asking myself, where the fuck is Reggie in all of this? Did he just go home? (laughs) He was Mm -hmm. like, all right, well, good luck with that guys. I'll talk to you later. Um, so then we've got Jody taking a very similar to Mike's nighttime trip. Back yep. to Morningside. He finds the same basement window. He crawls inside, turns the light on. He snoops around a little bit, gun drawn. And then from above, he gets jumped by a dwarf. Uh, and it's kind of growling like a pit bull. <laughs> um, I always found that, that that's something that really stuck with me. The sound design in this movie is, I think, pretty well done. And like yeah. the, the noises that these guys make are, are very memorable. Really crazy noises. Yeah. Uh, so there's a wrestle. There's there's a bit of a wrestling match. Uh, obviously Jody's gonna win because he's not a dwarf. Um, manages to toss the dwarf off. He shoots it once, but it keeps coming at him. 
Well, he does a weird, crazy thing where he points the gun backwards. That's right. Points it at his over his own head and yes. fires. Yeah, that's right. It get fucking freaked Ken out big time. Yeah, because you think he's like, gonna blow really his looks own like brains he's out. Blow his own brains out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, then he shoots the door a couple more times. Yeah, kind of knocks it down into some boxes, and then he jumps out the window, takes off into the woods. And again, it's one of these things where it's like, why doesn't he have his fucking car uh, yeah. that he takes everywhere else in this movie, including to and from the cemetery multiple times? But anyways, he's fleeing on foot. The hearse departs from the funeral home and gives chase. Right outside the gates, the hearse is about to run Jody down. He turns, he, he fires a shot at the driver's side, and then he jumps out of the way right before the hearse is going to hit him. Uh and then just then we see the headlights coming back and you think it's going to be the hearse, but then it's the Cuda. And there's a weird tense moment when Jody's like, not sure what's going on, but it mm-hmm. seems pretty clear that it would just be Mike driving the fucking car that he drives all the time. But there's like, a, right. there's like, they try to like make a little too much hay out of it being like, right. a, like a tense moment. It's Mike. It's obviously Mike. Um, it doesn't shoot his brother. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah, was it's good news. So, so now we got ourselves a good old fashioned car chase. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the Cuda tearing ass down the road. Um, Jody inside tells Mike there's no one driving the hearse, which is shocking information. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mike at the wheel. Jody pops up through the sunroof with his shotgun, blasts at the hearse a couple times, and this is this scene. This shot in particular is one that I think makes up. Uh, kind of like the introduction to Coscarelli's book, right? He talks yeah, about the introduction this. and the ending, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but yeah. yeah, do you want to share anything? I was going to say, because Mike, uh, uh, Jody has to shoot the camera, shoot the gun like almost directly at the camera. Yeah. And Coscarelli, we were like, well, we should put some padding on him. So they put like a couch cushion or something over his head. Yeah. And then Mike fires the shot in the couch cushion caught on fire. <laughs> right. Cause, cause he was basically saying that, you know, they're basically a bunch of dumb kids. So what they didn't really take into account, which a lot of people know now because, you know, people have died this way, but blanks still fire shit out of the barrel of a gun. There's wadding and there's like sort mm-hmm. of sp- stray bits of shit that come out. Right. It's not, it doesn't fire a slug that would kill someone at distance, but it's like, you still have to, you're not supposed to point it directly at anyone mm-hmm. and you certainly want to be at a distance. So yeah, they really got away with one on this. Yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> so how that Brendan Lee died. Yeah. Well, was, was it just, or was it an actual bullet? What happened? Oh, I'm not, I thought it, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought okay. it was just like the wadding. Or yeah. Something. Somebody fucked up. Maybe just pointed it at his head and shouldn't have or something. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyways. Um, so then Jody uh, takes aim at the engine block, makes a direct hit, blows the hood off the hearse. It veers off the road. It crashes into a tree. So Mike and Jody, they pull the cuda over. They jump out. They head over to the driver's side of the hearse. They open it up. And inside, there's a dwarf. So there was someone driving. It's not a ghost car. It's just the driver was very short. Mm-hmm. Uh and the dwarf's totally impaled on a tree limb and kind of squirming Shiver, around. Like, yeah, quivering. It's cool. Um, they pull back the dwarf's hood to reveal Tommy. He is His face is zombified, sort of. Mm-hmm. And he's spewing that chunky yellow blood. Um, but it's Tommy. So Jody um, goes to a conveniently placed payphone booth, calls yeah. up Reggie. 
Tells him to bring over his ice cream truck. The two of them hauled the Tommy Dwarf out of the hearse and they toss him in the truck's free- freezer. But meanwhile, commenting on his surprising weight, like he, he's, you know, three he's feet small, shorter than he, he used to be. But he weighs yeah. roughly, it seems like he weighs what he used to weigh, right? Uh, they throw a padlock on the freezer where they're going to keep him just to be extra careful. So we get back to the house and then we have what I will say is probably the strangest scene in the entire movie full of strange scenes. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it. But uh, so we've got the three guys are back at the house. We see Jody and Mike come in the front door. They leave the door open and Reg is coming from his ice cream truck and he's kind of he's pretty spooked because he's just getting introduced to all this crazy shit. Right. So he's trailing behind them. He comes inside. He locks the front door behind him. Heads down the hallway. The camera's falling right behind him, and it's a real tense scene. It's got, yeah, that's right. it's got some kind of, it's got Halloween vibes, you know. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So he gets down. And keep in mind, like Jody and Mike just went into the house ahead of him, like twenty seconds earlier. So he's walking down this hallway, kind of looking around, and then all of a sudden, out jumps a black woman in a maid's outfit. Yeah, <laughs> who never sh- seen before? Who we've never seen before? Who shouts at him? You boys home yet? (laughs) It's so weird. It's the middle of the night. It's the middle of the night. (laughs) And he knows who she is. He goes, oh, my God, Myrtle. (laughs) We don't. It's not even made clear that she's a maid. It's just like if you if you watch it three or four times like I had to, it seems like she's wearing a maid's outfit. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It's so strange. And then (laughs) Then uh, she's gone. She's gone and we'll never see her again. Uh, (laughs) So anyways, the the classic Myrtle jump scare. Um, <laughs> so then we got the the new trio dudes. The three of them are sitting by the fireplace and just kind of puzzling over everything they've witnessed. Um, you know, posing all the big questions anyone would have. Why are they taking these bodies and shrinking them down to half size? And, you know, uh, Mike brings up, what about mom and dad? They're up there uh, at Morningside, too. And Jody says, right. just just forget about that forget about it you know reggie's plan is just pretty aggro bro plan he wants to go stomp the shit out of the tall man and get some answers then they'll (laughs) they'll knock him out flat and drive a stake right through his heart mike says no man that mother's way too strong for that it's like the third time somebody says mother mother it's pretty funny very 70s um so then jody hatches a pretty confusing plan um Mm -hmm. That starts with Reggie driving Mike to the antique store that we've never heard of before. And this is, as you mentioned, so we've got a lot of missing plot pieces that I assume feed into this plan, right? Yes. Um, But we get this great, it's a very dreamlike shot of Reggie and Mike driving at night in the uh, ice cream truck, right? It just Mm -hmm. feels very surreal. Um. So then we see Mike, he's at the antique store with these two young women, because everybody knows every town has an antique store run by two 19-year-old blondes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mike's exploring the store, just sort of appreciating all the ominous oddities lining the walls. Uh, There's a little bit of poorly aged, like, uh, what's the word? Kind of like uh, cultural, like... Like he just sees some stuff from Asia. And it's oh like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, like an, uh, this isn't it, but like an African mask. Ooh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a term for that that I'm not remembering because I'm um, either 
because my brain is just full of uh, recaps and song lyrics. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he just sees all this various stuff until he stumbles onto some turn-of-the-century photographs. And one in particular catches his eye. It appears to be the tall man sitting atop a horse-drawn hearse. Mm-hmm. Very spooky. This is a this is a conceit that always creeps the shit out of me in horror movies. Um, you know, just the the uh, finding out someone's way older than they're supposed like, to be, like uh, the end of The Shining kind of thing. Yes, exactly. One of the best one of the best moments of that because it's also like, wait, what the fuck? Doesn't make any sense. Um, then the picture comes to life, mm-hmm. and it kind of pushes in on the tall man as he turns his head as he's wont to do, and he glares at Mike. Uh, and then the picture freezes again. Um, what do you think? Does this moment work for you? Do you like it? Uh, I don't love it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I do like the picture. I wish it yeah. would have stayed at picture. Yeah. But like the, the like all of a sudden it's like the Harry Potter newspapers. <laughs> yeah. doesn't, like That doesn't really work for me. Yeah, agreed. Um, it's a little cheesy. He doesn't look great in motion in that old timey get up. Mm-hmm. But um, I do like I like yeah. the reveal. Yeah. That he's like, oh, he's way older than we yeah. anticipated. Here's my other... This is my other nitpick. I think if you want to try to pull off the old-timey photo thing, you got to shoot this at a lower frame rate. You got to shoot it like... The, we talked that scene in Bram Stoker's Dracula where he shot with that that old turn-of-the-century camera. Oh, sure, yeah. Make it right? look like an old like silent film or something. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to yeah. if you're gonna go live with it, it can't be, it can't be 35 millimeter, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways, um... Mike immediately demands to be taken home. This is one of those many really circular plot points. Like maybe one of the shortcomings of the movie is how often um, there's a scene or a sequence of scenes that's really, if you think of like the, the plot of the movie as a straight line that goes from one end to the other, we have all these like horseshoe plots where it's just like, yeah, there's like, I went to this place and then turned back, went back to my house and then went back and then yeah. went back to that place. And then mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it is sort of like, I, I complained about it before. I think specifically like return of the living dead part two, we're just like, let's just go from one place to another place. Yeah. And then yeah. back again. It's like, it gets a little, yeah, definitely. I think, I think, some way to just like do a similar gambit to this without making them leave the house would have worked because what we're going to get in a second is Mike will be right back in the house again. But some shit's yep. going to happen in the meantime. So we get to see Reg. He's driving back uh, and he hears the snarling of the dwarf awakening in his ice cream freezer. We just get mm-hmm. that quick shot. Then we cut away to Jody, who's his part of the plan involves him doing jack shit. Except mm-hmm. sitting in what is admittedly a very sick Eames lounge chair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that I was like, man, I love those chairs, but I've broken two of them because I'm too fat for them. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, they're yeah. old, you know, really antiques. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, I wasn't really... Whatever. Just because the fact that you, the two of them... <laughs> yeah. Well, they both belong to the same couple who, uh, <laughs> who, who may or may not... <laughs> Uh, be people that you know who yeah, also yeah, I, like in my wedding and stuff. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I think they, I think they maybe know that I broke one of them, or maybe <laughs> not. I don't know. Anyways, I mean, breaking a chair is one of the hardest things to really like blame someone for because there's like a lot of body shaming that goes along with that. Yeah. So yeah. it's like most you don't really come for somebody's like bank account, be like, hey, you're gonna pay for that chair you broke by being fat. I broke uh, our fr- oh no. Actually, press play on Doughboys. 
I accidentally broke um, one of our friend's boss's hammocks oh. he's house-sitting for. <laughs> it was just like old and sun-dried. Sure. It's like got on it and... Yeah, shit happens. Yeah. Um, okay, so then... Jody falls asleep in the chair. He wakes up in the chair, but this time the chair is in the mausoleum. Uh, and he hears these moaning sounds again. And this tall man is striding towards him down the hallway. We get those echoey footsteps. And all of a sudden, the door to the tomb above Jody's head bursts open. And all these arms reach down to pull him up into the tomb. And he awakens at home in the chair again. We cut to Mike, who is riding in the back of a VW bug with the two... Uh, teenage <laughs> antique store owners. Um, and they come across Reggie's truck, which is flipped over on the side of the road. Mike yeah. makes them stop. He jumps out. No sign of Reggie. The padlock on the freezer is broken. There's no dwarf inside. There's just a puddle of yellow blood. So he heads back to the bug, tells the girls to get out of there quick, which is advice that they actively ignore. Do like, not take. Yeah. Do not take. Multiple times advice that they turn down in the scene. <laughs> Suddenly there's all this scraping and rattling at the door. The door locks jiggling. Again, he tells the girls to leave, but they're total idiots. One of the dwarves rips the door open, and then two of them, I think, two of them jump in the car. One of them's attacking the girls. They're screaming like crazy. The other one's kind of throttling Mike in the back seat. It's kind of a weird scene. Like the the, the geography of it all and, and sort of the action is a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. Mike's getting shaken like by this dwarf like a like a loud baby. And uh, all of a sudden, I guess he gets tossed through the back windshield of the car mm-hmm. and the car drives off. Um, I guess being driven by a dwarf. Uh, but we've already established they can drive. So uh, Mike lies on the ground for a while. Maybe we're supposed to think he might be hurt pretty bad or dead but he wakes up he shakes it off and and then we get another mike jogging home in the middle of the night scene yeah Uh, does that a lot in this movie yeah he does so he meets up with jody back at the house he's got to tell him what happens but before that he has to take a cold refreshing swig of dos equis Uh, (laughs) then he gives his brother the download uh jody decides he's got to go alone back to morningside Mike is pissed. He's screaming, protesting. Jody throws him over his shoulder. Full on big brother shit. Uh, Tosses him into his room. Throws him on the ground. But it's fine because they've got shag carpet. So it's a soft landing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then one of the most interesting things in the movie, because this is something that I forgot was ever a thing, but I guess it was. So Jody takes a screwdriver and jams it into the door jam. Yeah, I was confused by how that works. And then the door won't open, which is like, I think this is like an old thing that people would do that I just don't, I don't know exactly how it works, but I guess it might work. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Somebody write in. Can I describe what uh, what Mike does in response to this? Please do. Yeah. Uh, So so Mike's locked in his room. Eric, take it away. (laughs) It's completely insane. So what he does is uh, Jody leaves. Mike's at his desk. He's like play, absentmindedly playing with a shotgun shell that <laughs> right. he has. He has in his pocket. And then he he kind of gets this idea. He's like, wait a minute. He looks at his like bulletin board. There's tack there. He sticks a tack. He pulls a hammer out also. Yeah. Sticks a tack into like the primer of the gun. Yeah, like the little like, where the firing like, pin would hit the shotgun shell. Yeah, exactly. 
and then eventually tapes the shotgun shell to the end of the hammer. Yeah. Goes over to the <laughs> to the door. It just smacks the hammer in the shotgun shell, yeah. which boom blows the lock. Yeah, Some which full on MacGyver shit. Once. Yeah, it's totally crazy. They can only do it once because uh, Michael Baldwin, the they accidentally discharged the shotgun shell or like the explosive, uh-huh. the second time, and it like popped in his face and like burned him and he's oh, like jesus i'm not doing this again <laughs> oh <Yeah>. wow <laughs> so they only got it the one shot holy shit well it works it looks fine and yeah. i, I want to know if that would actually work or not um me too it's crazy let's try it out um let's try it out. i got a bunch sure. of doors i got a bunch of doors in my house um <laughs> yeah so jody uh is taken off in the cuda but mike has successfully gotten out of his room so he is in hot pursuit uh, he's armed with a handgun that, for whatever reason, Jody decided not to take with him this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mike runs to the front door. He throws it open, only to run smack into the tall man who is waiting That's for dumb. him. Yeah. Tall man grabs him, drags him outside, lifts him off the ground with one hand. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, There's like a trick shot they did with like a camera dolly that Mike stood he, on. and Yeah. Makes sense. Angus Scrim apparently couldn't one-hand a 13-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Maybe should have tried harder. Do some more of those lateral raises, you know? Get a 25-pounder. Yeah, yeah. Big, big boys. <laughs> Anyways, uh, lifts him off the ground, tosses him into the back of the hearse. Jody arrives at Morningside in the Cuda. The hearse is close behind. Mike's locked in the back. He uh, tries to kick his way out, realizes he's got a gun, so he shoots out the back window. And then has the bright idea to kind of shoot into the wheel well and blow one of the tires. Mm-hmm. So the hearse starts skidding around. He leaps out onto the road completely unharmed. It's mm-hmm. perfectly. It's a perfect Second time he's cu- he's jumped out of a or he's pulled out of a moving yeah. vehicle. He is an expert at the tuck and roll. Um, the hearse totally loses it. Crashes into a telephone pole. Explodes into flames. Immediately blows. Yeah, it's great. Did. Do we know anything about this? Did they have to buy multiple hearses? Did they blow up the one hearse they had at the end of the movie? I don't know that. I know that it was shot at like Westlake Village or something like that. Okay. Which is like a um, Yeah, like out the out the 101, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is like a I don't know, weird area of LA to do this in cuz it seems like very densely populated. If well, I would guess of. that back in those days there wasn't a whole hell of a lot there. Probably um, because most of the uh, shit that's out there is like newer housing developments. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking, of, is that the place by Koreatown? Uh, uh, yeah. So there are two. So you're thinking of just Westlake, I believe. That's what I'm thinking of. Then. Yeah. Okay. Let's not get in the weeds about it. That, that okay. was my mistake. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. Westlake village we is don't like need to do- <laughs> its own Valley city. Uh, okay. Anyways, oh, okay, by okay, Thousand so, Oaks. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay, anyways, this has been the Californians. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Mike is uh, safe on the ground. The hearse explodes. Um, then we have uh, Jody. Uh, he is inside the mausoleum, and he's decided he's got to open up his parents' tomb because he needs some answers. Uh, meanwhile, Mike is approaching the funeral home from outside. Jody gets his dad's casket open, but he's got his eyes closed, and he's looking up 
maybe not doing exactly the right face that you'd want for this shot. Uh, <laughs> but he's trying hard. And honestly, these guys do a good job overall acting. I think. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Especially for like kind of not, I mean, I don't want to call them non-professionals, but like not, you know, big time actors. Right. I mean, really, Michael Baldwin was the one with the most experience. Like the yeah. Mike. Yeah. He, he had, cause he was in a, a couple of other, or the one other, Coscarelli movie mm-hmm. and his dad was like in animation. He had he came from a, he already had an agent. Okay, gotcha. And uh Reggie certainly didn't really and Jody, yeah. the guy who played Jody was like he Oh He's he more actually auditioned, right? He auditioned for Star Wars for oh. the loop role. Interesting. Didn't get it. He was, he was kind of like, nah, this seems stupid. <laughs> not that he, he's like, not that I would have gotten it, but yeah. I just like totally didn't give it the respect it deserved. Interesting. Yeah. Um so Jody won't look in the casket. He can't look. He just says he has to be in there, and then he closes it. Um, but just then we get a red POV shot of what would seem to be a silver sentinel traveling nearby. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Mike's inside the mausoleum. Jody's no longer at his dad's tomb, but Mike comes along to the, to the casket. He apologizes, says, sorry, daddy. He opens up the casket, and this one, this brother has the balls to look inside. Mm-hmm. And it is empty. He screams. Screams. I had to rewind this part. Because yeah. I'm like, wait, what did he see? I didn't see anything. What did he see? Yeah. Uh-huh. He just screams at the top of his lungs at the nothingness that's in the casket, which is like a little bit of a big response. But anyways, you know, we're nitpicking here. There's, there's a lot of fun to be had. Uh, he runs down the hall, turns the corner only to find himself in the path of a sentinel rocketing towards him, spikes out. But Jody jumps out from the hallway just in the nick of time and blows it out of the out of the air with his shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike fills in Jody that the casket was empty, and then, <laughs> apropos of almost nothing, he goes and there's a door down the hallway, and I bet there's something behind it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is honestly one of my favorite lines in this movie. Yeah. Um, so the, the two cool of them, statue of, like are like those Roman faces above yeah. it. Yeah. Like yeah, they're very creepy and interesting. They're just like one of those things that like begs questions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they go to take a look. They're about to go in when up pops Reggie behind them for a quick jump scare. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not dead and he ain't three foot two yet either. Um, <laughs> we get and again, my mind goes to what in God's name was cut out of this movie because we get the insane update that he has been hiding in a casket pretending to be dead. But also, he found the two girls and also a bunch of other girls, and he snuck them all out of the building, and they're fine, and they ran off into the woods. Um, yeah, it's it is a real <laughs> info dump. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, if you're watching this movie for the first time, you're like, that's definitely got to be like the tall man, right? Who's like right. pretending to be Reggie because this story is such insane bullshit. <laughs> it's like, no, it's Reggie. Um, so. The three of them, uh, they uh, argue over who's going to go in first, but they open the door, and now we get the pivot of this whole crazy movie. <laughs> it's so crazy. I love this part. Yeah. Uh, so they walk inside. It is bright, bright white. Uh, there's a loud, constant hum coming from mm-hmm. the room, and the walls are lined with stacks of sort of vaguely futuristic looking black barrels like mm-hmm. almost with black like, plastic barrels kind of like it with like 
a, not a screen, a window or something. Little viewing windows. Yeah. Like yeah. similar to Return of the Living Dead, where you would look in yes. to see what's inside, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the room, it's completely empty, bright white, except for there are two chrome posts about three feet high, maybe that many feet apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jody he looks inside one of the barrels in, in one of the little viewing windows, and he exclaims, there's dwarves. It's a dwarf inside. He says, Reggie, you got to come take a look at this. But meanwhile, on the other side of the room, Mike is investigating the posts. He kind of sticks his hand in between, and his hand completely disappears from view, and there's a goofy little sound. So we kind of... We, we figure out we've got a little bit of a Stargate type of situation here, but mm-hmm. without the, the cool water effects, it's just like his hand just disappears and he gets it back, right? And, and he's looking at his hand and then he flashes back to his Dune box test mm-hmm. and he hears the voice, don't fear. Uh, so he sticks his hand in a couple more times and then he, whoop, he gets sucked in. Uh, he pops his, his whole body gets sucked in. Yeah. And then he's in a loud, windy, sort of red void. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then he sees far below him. I I would describe it as sort of like the surface of an inhospitable desert planet. Mm -hmm. And there's a line of dwarves stretching all the way to the horizon. And strewn amongst them are the black barrels. Um, It's a crazy shot. And it's... It's a crazy shot. It's a crazy idea. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of the Ronnie James Dio music video that Coscarelli ended up doing. Really? Uh, which I won't really <laughs> describe too much, but it's there's like a similar vibe to okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, apparently this is just children in like some desert part of the Yeah. Movie. I can't remember which, where. Um, yeah, it looks it looks insane. It's an unforgettable luckily, sequence. Yeah. Like Mike, Mike's kind of like falling through the sky, but luckily... Jody's right there with his hand on his belt. Yeah. Keep rescue him. Plummeting to this foreign planet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Jody and Reg both pull him back into the white room. Uh, they dust him off. He, he describes what he's seen. And then he knows a little too much about what's going on. Uh, he knows exactly what, what they're, yeah. they're doing. He says slaves. They're using them for slaves. Yep. They got to crush them because of the gravity. And yep. the heat. In the heat. <laughs> and this is the door to their planet. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he figures it all out. And then Reggie goes, yeah, and snaps his finger. <laughs> and everybody understands, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Everybody gets it. Makes perfect sense. Uh, then, with no warning, the lights go out. The room goes completely quiet. The hum is gone. Mike pulls out his lighter. He lights it. To reveal a dwarf right in front of him who jumps him. The light goes out. Jody shouts, over here, follow me. It's completely pitch black. We see nothing. Reg can't find either one of them. But we hear a lot of dwarf snarling. And then all of a sudden, Jody's outside. He's, he's outside on the lawn in front of the funeral home. He's, mm-hmm. looking, he's looking for Mike. Back in the white room, the lights go on and Reg is by himself now. So can I, I just want to interject really quickly. Yeah. That scene was cut out of the initial video run of Phantasm because it was dark and they thought it was, they thought there was no information there. So they just cut it. Wow. 
Yeah, and then it was restored like in like later versions, but it was like an accident on the manufacturer's part. Oh, shitty. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad it's fixed now. Um, so Reg is in the white room. He starts approaching the chrome post, and then he has a flashback to his moment with his tuning fork when he touched the two prongs, and he gets the idea to do the same thing with his hands, and he starts to creep towards the posts. Right. Outside, Jody's still looking for Mike. But behind him, the lady in lavender is in the bushes, ready to jump out. And she's got her little knife. She's in stabbing position. Uh, but then she gasps as we see back inside. Reg has touched the posts. He has his hands on the posts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, my assumption, my understanding is that he has fully opened the gate to this other world. Yeah. And, Wind starts rushing, very much like Alien, kind of our open airlock type sequences. Yeah, like the sucked into the vacuum of space kind yeah. of Yeah. So all the barrels are flying into the into the gate and falling off the wall. He's army crawling his way towards the door. Uh, wind's blowing like crazy. That sexy ponytail's going all over the place. <laughs> uh, he gets outside the door. Um, outside, Mike's looking for Jody, but this wind is everywhere, right? It's blowing in Mike's face. It's blowing in Jody's face. Reg gets outside, and right out in front of the funeral home, he sees the lady in lavender kind of passed out on the ground. So he goes to go pick her up, but she's got her stabby little knife. She stabs mm-hmm. Reggie right in the gut. Right in yeah. the gut. Oh, it's it's brutal. Um, Jody and Mike reunite in the windstorm as Reg is bleeding out. Um. And then we get that uh, kind of redo of that same for the third time. It's like we see the lady's face blowing in the wind and then it's the tall man's face and then it's her face again. And then she sort of transitions fully to to the tall man. And and this is you were you were talking about earlier, Eric, you were, you were going to say that this was news to both of the actors, right? That this is how things yeah. were going to unfold. Yeah, they didn't like. It wasn't really like. I, I think the Lady Lavender was initially supposed to be like just like a minion of the Tall Man, not the right. Tall Man them, himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, is, the the first time they were seeing this was when they first watched the movie. Yeah, like at the screening, right? And mm-hmm. it's funny because it means that the Tall Man fucked Tommy, and yeah, like, definitely yeah. like probably at least touched Jody's dick. I'm guessing. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just done. a it's a weird thing to think about. Um, yeah, because the tall man, you know, the tall he, man's a demon in the sack. Honestly, like <laughs> he's very good. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Otherworldly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the tall man now is takes the knife out of Reggie's stomach and stands over him while he dies. Jody and Mike spot the two of them, but Jody knows it's too late. Reg is already dead. So they hop in the Cuda. They haul ass out of there. Just as the whole mausoleum or the whole funeral home flashes different colors and then disappears. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty cool 70s special effect. I don't mind it. Yeah, it's very 70s. Yeah. Very 70s. All right. Reminiscent. Is, this isn't. It, that kind of stuff always reminds me of like the fake electricity that's like clearly drawn on. It's yeah. Like that level of special yeah, effect. Definitely. But yeah, it's it's satisfying in an analog kind of way. All right, we're in the home stretch here, folks. Uh, Jody and Mike get back at home. They're sitting in the driveway in the Cuda. 
just you really shell shocked over the the death of Reggie. Jody hatches a new plan. They're gonna draw the tall man to the old mine shaft. Classic. Mm-hmm. They're gonna drop him a thousand feet down, straight to hell. So Mike's job is to go in the house and find more ammo. Uh, by himself. By himself. While Jody's gonna go over to the mine shaft, he's gonna get rid of the barrier around it and kind of camouflage it so it can serve as a trap, right? So Mike's in the house. He's locking all the windows and doors, clears every room. And then now help me out here. Cause I was moving pretty fast at this point in the movie yep. on, my, on my rewatch. Does he see the tall man through the window first? The tall man sort of just like a, he knocks down the door. Okay. So it's just straight to the door. Light. I hallucinated yeah. some scene where he sees the tall man outside the window. Because he looks out the window, he opens the drapes, and you figure he's going to see somebody. He's going to see him there. No, but he he's not there. Yeah. Oh, but the tall man does appear in a window at some point in the movie. Right? Maybe it's earlier. Maybe it's earlier. Anyways. Yeah. Um. So, Mike, yeah, is walking down the hallway, and like you said, this door blasts off the hinges, and behind it is the tall man. And this is another one which just the most practical of practical effects that I really loved. So one of the one of the people on the crew, literally that door is just off. It's not connected to its hinges. And there's a guy on the other side of it holding on to it. And then he just kind of plows through, jumps through, like pushes the door out and then jumps out of the mm-hmm. way with the door to just like make it look like the door blew off its hinges and then, yeah. and then fell away. Right. And it's just very like lo-fi, cool. lo-fi, simple, but genius in its own way. Um, so we get for the first time in the movie, sort of a signature line from the tall man. See, sees Mike and he goes, boy, mm-hmm. uh, boy. boy, yeah, <laughs> the intonation's tricky. You gotta get it. But anyways, he says boy a lot. Um, tall man chases him down the hallway. Um, Mike gets out of the house and the and the chase is on and it it really seems like this just should have been the plan the whole time. We didn't need mm-hmm. this look for ammo. It's like no, you'll be bait, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so he's running down the road. The tall man is stalking after him as he does, and we hear, I think it's voiceover. He doesn't actually see, we don't see him saying it, which goes to this. There is like this sort of recurring element of like telepathic communication almost, right? Mm-hmm. The, the tall man says. You play a good game, boy, but the game is finished. Now you die. Mike goes through a very fast sort of uh, somewhat metaphorical trial. He runs into some mud, like quicksand-esque mud. Yeah, some like quicksand, yeah. Starts to panic, but then he remembers the teaching of the old psychic to have no fear. And he repeats his mantra, no fear. And the next... He's confronted by the lady in Lavender wielding her little stabby knife, but he remembers not to fear, and he walks right past her, and then he's waiting for the tall man who bursts through the bushes behind him, and then he takes off again, and he leads him down a path. He runs past. We see the sign for the mine shaft that, that Jody has presumably moved and hidden off in the bushes. Mm-hmm. Mike runs down the path. Gets to the mine shaft, leaps over it as the tall man follows, and then falls in to the camouflaged mine shaft door. As he plunges in, he grabs Mike's foot, but Mike is able to kick loose. Keeps both his shoes this time. 
And the tall yeah, man. Different, well, how do you get a shoe back? I assume he had more than one pair of shoes. Um, the tall man plummets down. We hear screams. And then up above on the hillside where Jody has his car parked. Maybe using the car. Uh, maybe. Who can tell? Using his super strength. <laughs> Seems like he pushes some giant boulders, like multiple thousands of pounds, down the hill that conveniently fall directly into the very tiny open mouth of the mine shaft and yeah. block it up completely. It's pretty pretty silly, but it, it's improbable. It's strange. It is, but also, you know, there is this kind of dreamlike mood to everything that's happened so far. And it's like it's mm-hmm. it's in keeping with many of the strange things that have happened. Uh, and then, you know, they share a look like, Hey, we did it. And then back at home, Mike is lying in bed. He's listening to the sound of thunder. And then we crossfade to Mike sitting in front of the fireplace with Reggie, who seems to be alive and well. And Mike is, is recounting the story of what just happened. He says that the rocks fell and, uh, but he knows that the tall man is coming to get him. And, Reggie says, you know, says, hey, you know, it's just a dream, man. You've hardly slept since the funeral last week. He says, Mike, that tall man of yours did not take Jody away. Jody died in a car wreck. Mm -hmm. And then we see scenes of Jody's grave and Mike mourning. And then we're back in front of the fireplace and a tear rolls down Mike's face. And Reg comforts him. And tells him, hey, it was all a bad dream. I know you're scared, but you're not alone. And Mike knows, Reggie knows, that he can't ever take Jody's place. But he's sure as hell going to try. He says, you know, partner, what we need is a change of scenery. Why don't we hit the road for a couple weeks? Where are they going to go? They'll figure it out when they get there. So he sends Mike upstairs to get his gear. Reggie very quickly whips out his acoustic guitar. (laughs) And starts jamming, <laughs> jamming a tune that is in a very different key than the pretty loud score. Um, it, yeah, it's like fighting up against the score. It's weird. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, in a perfect world, you maybe go back, you tell Reggie, hey, we're going to switch the key. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just make these things not completely clash. Um, so Mike's up in his room. He's packing a bag. He looks longingly at a Polaroid of Jody. Jamming his guitar on a bed in a kind of suggestive position. Uh, it kind of seems like the first in a series of photos that's going to end with full frontal nudity. Um, <laughs> maybe that's just me. Um, Mike, as he's packing up, he, he closes his closet door. There's a mirror on the back of it. And as the, as the door turns, the mirror reveals the tall man standing ominously in the corner of the room. And he gets another big boy shout out. You want to do it? You want to do the boy? Boy. Yeah. Boy. And. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. You, what's up? How long? Boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he has much I... shorter hair because this is all reshoots, actually. Yeah, so yeah. This is not the only time in the movie when people's hairstyles change somewhat unexpectedly. Yeah. <laughs> um, demon hands burst through the mirror behind Mike and grab his head from behind. And they wrap around him, pull him all the way through the through the mirror, and he disappears into darkness. 
and we get our end credits written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Hell yeah. Uh, well, guys, if you wanted to save yourself about 20 minutes, you should watch the movie. <laughs> hey, now we talked about Arclight. So I think I, finished, I think I finished the recap maybe five minutes shy of the actual running time. Um, all right. So in terms of deaths here, actually, it's a pretty low body count in yeah. this movie. Uh, we got Tommy, the caretaker, um, the little girl. Because mm-hmm. she dies off screen. Yeah. Uh, some dwarves. Mm-hmm. Reggie. Yeah, he has a death scene, certainly. Yeah. Jody. Yeah. Um, we don't ever see I mean, Jody I, die. We never see Jody die, but he does yeah. die. Yeah, theoretically. I mean, this is a no-brainer for. Yeah, Peter there's deaths, only one. Right? There's only one correct. There's answer only for one. This. Yeah. That is the the caretaker being killed by the sentinel. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really there's no other thing to say. I was, you know, honorable mention to like the dwarf that's like uh has the impaled by the tree branch maybe yeah it's a good good wriggle it's kind of weirdness yeah yeah uh so this movie you know it's how old is it now i I don't need to do the math every time eric you know it's fucking it's 42 years old 78 yeah Certainly, there are things in here that didn't age very well. Uh, <laughs> do you have any candidates for moments that age the worst? Yeah, I think this one's also a bit of a no-brainer. <laughs> bit of a no-brainer. Yeah. But I mean, with that being said, there are, we've watched movies with worse no-brainer, most oh, offensive parts. Much worse, certainly. One of the most egregious is, and I think we will get to this series. Uh-huh. Who knows when? In Sleepaway Camp 3 oh, yeah? has one of the most out-of-nowhere N-bombs that I've ever Jesus heard in a movie. Christ. And it's so fucking jarring. Oh, and it's also from a character that is so attractive. And I was like, oh, I have such a crush on this girl. And then she just full-on drops a, a hard R N-bomb. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. Anyways. Uh so we here at Killstreak like to rate how scary these movies are. Oh yeah! Are. By the way, you guys, do... it was it was the it was the little kid down the street. That was the one we were talking about. Oh, did I? I'm sorry, I skipped <laughs> no, over that. I, got... I think everybody knows what it was, anyways. But just yeah. in case, yeah, he's uh, he's got special needs, anyways. On a scale of one to ten, how scary would you say this movie is? It's a t- it's tough because I don't know that. You know, that's the common refrain on my mm-hmm. part. I I don't I'm not often scared by movies. Yeah. This movie certainly has like a very campy aspect that I appreciate, mm-hmm. but I also like the dream. The dream logic is is kind yeah. of disorienting. And it can and make it spooky. yeah discomforting, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I can take the lead on this. I'm going to say that um, the first time I saw it, I thought it was pretty scary. Um, and mm-hmm. with all that stuff in mind, I want to call this an eight, probably. No, oh, that's pretty high. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I was around seven. You want to come? Want to meet in the middle at seven point five? That works for me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Seven point okay. five. What is that on the uh, West Craven scale, Eric? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I think we could tack uh, another five minutes onto this end. You know, I I also I mean it's pretty comparable in a lot of ways to Nightmare on Elm Street. In a lot it of is, ways. yeah, especially tonally, the, not so. Yeah, I guess maybe scare wise in a way. It's Nightmare that movie certainly gory. Yeah, yeah. Um. And then got? finally, Mary fuck kill. Sure. sure, this, sure. Is, this for me is a Mary. Yeah, it's definitely Mary for me. Um, shall I go first with my closing thoughts? or 
No, I'll go first. Okay. Uh, you know, it's a movie that I've I've seen a bunch of times. I keep coming mm. back to it. It's it's intoxicating. It's very fun. It's it, I would love love to see this in front of a crowd of people. Oh yeah, in a theater. I really yeah. would. Mm-hmm. I never have. I would love to see it on the big screen, in like some sort of restored print or whatever. Yeah. I think that would just be a blast. But yeah, this is. Uh, it, not gonna say it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time, mm-hmm. but it's one I really admire. Yeah, um, and it, it'll always be in the rotation for me. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very spot on. Yeah, it's not, it's not a hall of. Well, I don't even know what is the hall of fame. It is kind of a hall of famer for me, but it's like it's not making the Mount Rushmore for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It has its flaws, it, it you know, but it's. It's a movie I'm very fond of, and I always enjoy. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff I really appreciate about it. There's a lot of stuff I respect about it. I mean, we didn't really talk about it much because it is sort of a spoiler for the end. But that ending is very controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, I mean? In a nutshell, not to make you talk a whole lot longer, but I mean, how do you feel about the sort of "it was all a dream" ending? And what are we supposed to believe? You know? Well, I, I think because the initial ending was supposed to be it was all a dream, hard mm-hmm. stop. Yeah. But I think the addition of the the tall man appearing and grabbing Michael mm-hmm. uh, really saves it because I don't like that. It's a it's a, all a dream kind right. of a plot device. Yeah. Um, and so that really saves it for me because, it's, oh, there is what we just witnessed for the past 90 mis- mm-hmm. minutes wasn't just some hallucination. Sure. There's some truth here. And then. You know, with the sequels, yeah, we kind of, I think we immediately pick up where we left off. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I think I mean it's interesting too because it's like the it's all a dream thing actually lends a lot of in some ways weight to the movie, which because uh-huh. because with without that added tag of the tall man, it really is just a movie about grief and grieving. Yeah, and and like sort of the fear of death and and the effect that it would have, especially on like a young person. Uh, and the movie is still about those things, but uh, probably less so. Um, so, yeah, all of that stuff, I think, is like a little unresolved. And so it's never something that's going to be like a total slam dunk for me. But it's something that I think it's a somewhat challenging movie for something that's kind of so fun and almost sort of pulpy uh, in the way it's pulled off. But, yeah, I think the performances are pretty good. I think that the uh, technical artistry on display for the amount of experience and the money that they spend is really impressive. Yeah, I um, think so. Yeah, and overall, it's just like a movie that I can only really hold positive feelings about. So it's an easy marry for me, too. Uh, so I'm going to make a bit of an executive decision and probably <laughs> say that we wrap it up right around here, unless you uh, disagree. I'm not going to fight you on it, although I was looking forward to our end segment, but I think we can probably fit it in later in the series. So, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's do some housekeeping here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to write to us, you can do it at uh, killstreakpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and or Instagram at killstreakpod. Uh, leave us a voicemail. You can follow the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, please Read, uh, rate and review us on iTunes. That's very helpful for us. Yeah, yeah. We Apple Podcasts. It. iTunes doesn't exist anymore. 
I always do that. That's Sorry. okay. That's yeah. just going to be a constant thing I always say. That's fine. I might just keep saying <laughs> the second part. <laughs> <laughs> if I know you, then yes, you're right. <laughs> uh, so next week we're going to be covering Phantasm 2. It's also playing on Tubi, Tubi.tv. They have, app, they have apps for various mm-hmm. streaming devices. I think that these little... might also be on Prime. I mean, I watched Phantasm on Prime. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, and well, I then believe I Phantasm 2 is also currently on Prime. Well, then I will probably watch it there because 2 nope. has commercials. I already lied. I already lied. It is not oh. on Prime. It was just the first one. So if you watched it with commercials before, we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now you have to. Anyways, yeah. Watch Phantasm 2 and uh, check in with us next week. Uh it's a it's a wild one. It's a it's it's a movie that came together in a much different way, and nine years later, mm-hmm. and I think it's an exciting and interesting story uh, to hear. Yeah, about. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, well, and as always, boy, <laughs> we're hot as love, you know. 